This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry South and Becca Hurley. The gang is gathered, my friends. Today we're going to be talking about Amazon taking over healthcare. Uh, pretty interesting little dynamic when Warren Buffett sees a business opportunity and then he combines with Amazon and JP Morgan Chase and they think, hey, maybe what we ought to start doing is offering uh, health care. It's, it's a very interesting day. They're going to be doing it for their own employees. Why not uh, then create a product that everyone can use? So we'll get into that. What does that mean for the rest of us? Also, today we're going to be talking about we got to get into the fact that uh, President Trump's personal attorney has now had his offices raided by the, the uh, FBI. This seems to have upped the ante a bit in the Trump investigation. Interesting story. There was a lot of paparazzi that were outside the uh, office building this was happening in. It was either an office building or a hotel. I can't remember. Wow. But the paparazzi were out there because uh, McGregor, the, uh, the uh, UFC Ewan, fighter, Ewan <laughs> he went out. Not Ewan McGregor, but the UFC fighter. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right the fighter. The Irish What's fighter. Yeah, uh, I forget his first name. Yeah, yeah. But he, uh, over the weekend, took a security barrier yeah. inside a facility and threw it at the window of a bus. He he snuck into Colin McGregor. I Colin McGregor. So he, he he snuck in and wanted to With fight this team, other guy. Yeah, 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 it was this whole thing. So he that's what the paparazzi was outside the building waiting for when all these FBI guys come no walking way. in. And they said the majority of the paparazzi were like, "Yeah, it's fine. We're waiting for this guy because you know he threw a you know security barricade at a bus, not the guy that they they're didn't looking know for papers. what they had walked into. Holy yeah. cow! It was interesting. Just they were there for a whole different reason. And so there's a lot of photos. of people walking in the building because they went all right take pictures of that this is it's boy by the way the mcgregor thing's crazy in and of itself right because he may have just shot himself in the foot from ever doing anything with the ufc maybe because or it's a huge hey this isn't wwe (laughs) we have standards (laughs) except for one of the ufc top fighters ronda rousey just fought with the wwe she's not in the ufc anymore right she's out of ultimate fighting yeah she lost one fight in the Apparently crushed everything, so now she's off to you know play act. Okay, that's how that works. That's how that works. <laughs> I guess it is kind of ironic that uh, how this all comes together, though, because didn't President Trump bring on the U uh, the WWE's uh, founder's spouse? Yes, as one of his cabinet members. She's running the uh, business bureau, I believe. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because you know she ran a business. Well, it's all business. Yeah. It's all business. She's the, she's one of the, well no I was going to say she's one of the only members of the uh, the uh, McMahon family not to actually go in the ring but she's actually been in the ring before too so well, so is Donald yeah well it's exciting <laughs> wow and uh, meanwhile the president's personal attorney is is now had his office raided which yeah. means you know information about the whole a lot of the scandals with some of these ladies and mm-hmm. a lot of data is now. In the hands of the FBI, which he doesn't trust much anyway, and that now has put Sessions back in play, Rod Rosenstein back in play. Hmm. A lot of fun stuff. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. So, What's going on? As we're talking about, President Trump has declared attorney-client privilege dead. The morning after FBI raided the offices of his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, officials in New York 
are said to have seized documents about payoffs in a raid the president has called the disgrace and an attack on our country. Tweeting Tuesday morning, the president said the raid marked the end of attorney-client privilege, which keeps communication between an attorney and a client secret, and said that it was unfair targeting his personal lawyer. He's calling it a total witch hunt and blasted, the uh, as the president said in another tweet. It's interesting, the witch hunt is being led by people he appointed to office. Yeah. That's a thing to keep in mind. Are they from Salem, Massachusetts? Uh, No, but uh, each of them had to go across his desk. He went, yeah, that guy should be good for the job. Now they're running a witch hunt against him. Well, and it's weird how he talks because one minute he's saying Rod Rosenstein did a good thing because he signed off on firing Comey. Right. And he's also saying he did a bad thing because he signed off on allowing the FBI to go investigate his attorney. Exactly. It makes total sense. Seems a little confusing. Now, uh, Axios.com talked to a former uh, deputy, let's see, a former U.S. attorney to kind of help kind of figure out what's going on. He says, the guy says, here's what must have happened. Mueller bumped into evidence of criminal conduct that was beyond his scope. So he deferred it to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Rod had the option of expanding the Mueller mandate or sending it to the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He sent it to the New York yeah, attorneys, yeah. right? The the uh, they're calling it the the Southern District in New York. Then looked at the evidence, decided to open investigation, and ultimately decided that Cohen would have documents relevant to the investigation. The uh, Southern District then decided that Cohen could not be trusted to produce the documents pursuant to the subpoena, or else he would they would have just subpoenaed the documents. Right. So they had to serve a find. They had to get a warrant. So this has nothing to do with Mueller, except that he found something in one of his investigations. He didn't get an extension of his uh, his mandate. Right. And instead, another bureau of the FBI is investigating. You know, the process of law. Yeah. There's people looking at it, but judging. But if you don't trust the FBI like the president doesn't, then he thinks, why aren't we doing this with Hillary? So the, they consulted with the Department of Justice as required, probably Rosenstein, and they obtained a search warrant, which meant they had probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that Cohen was evidence that there was uh, that was fruit or instrument of evidence of the crime. Cohen's lawyer said that a search warrant was based in part on a referral by Mueller, and this guy expects that after getting the initial referral, the Southern District started poking around and developed independent an independent interest for obtaining the search warrant. And with all that, well, all they seized, including electronic evidence, any evidence of crime is now fair game. Mm. So now, now Trump has the added, added problem. It's not Mueller. It's also the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York that's looking into him, and it's just it's expanding oh, wow. now. So now we've gone beyond Mueller. Well, not, now it's is. interesting. Now you have you don't just have uh, the alleged women issues, mm-hmm. but you now and you don't have just the Russia issue. Right. You now have another investigation where the FBI are involved with his attorney. Yes. So and Mueller's, three Mueller's, or four investigations. Mueller is now looking into some payments coming from Ukraine yeah. to the Trump uh, Trump uh, now, campaign. He got 150 grand for doing a 20 minute speech. It was like a, he skyped into some conference yeah. in Ukraine. So, and by by the way, paid by Russians. Yeah. While he's in, he is now and he's now uh, at the time he was a uh, he was just starting his campaign. Yeah. Not so they're like, what is all this money? Where hmm. is it coming from? So wow. all this crazy. Uh, and a cabinet that, that same cabinet meeting. Yeah. President Trump condemned the suspected chemical attack in Syria, calling it heinous, and saying that mm. he will make a, some major decisions in the next 24 to 48 hours. That's so we could have 
military action, possibly in the middle wow, of this. Wow, this is crazy. Also, uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg will be yeah. testifying today. Yesterday, a, the uh, what the House Committee on Energy and Commerce released his prepared statement. He says he is sorry. Uh, we messed up. It's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm. As well, that goes for uh, you know that goes for fake news, foreign interference in elections, and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. It was my mistake, and I'm sorry. He'll testify at two fifteen Eastern. Wow! Apparently, networks are going to bring all their 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 top anchors in to 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 lead you into the 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 the, the testimony, and then to sum it up at the end and turn it into big now, TV events. It seems kind of strange because we've been talking about the real value of Facebook is the data. Yeah. And we've been talking about that for three or four years. Right. This can't be new. But, but it seems like it's new to a lot of people. I think it's connected to the volatile election. That's really what's amped this up. Okay. If they were just selling us, like, you know, cell phone cases, no one would yeah. really care. But it's attached to politics, and people are like, hey, wait a second. This is why the president got elected. Well, yes and no. Yeah, it's, they're blaming Facebook and Google, but in what, reality, what's a lot of people voted for them, The right? Cambridge Analytica company, yeah. Ted Cruz dropped them because they didn't do anything. It didn't their, work. Their, their process was, they, they saw it, that it turned out that the people didn't really know what they were doing. They were just, it was kind of like smoke and mirrors, snake oil, that kind of thing. Yeah. And people were using it because certain donors, the Mercer family, said, if you want our money, you must use this company. Wow. That was kind of how that all went together. The tangled web. So the the actual like effectiveness of what these people, what Cambridge Analytica said they were doing with the data, is suspect as if it even did anything. Yeah, I think it's more just the idea like you're using our data, but now they know that you have a puppy and you like these TV shows. <laughs> it's well, not like they gave over like credit card and your you know yeah. your credit information yeah, all that. Kind but of they stuff. they and now more information is coming out that Google knows. If kids are surfing, oh yeah. So now that Google may be giving away kid information, right? Information about your children. It's just going to roll downhill. Ah. Here. It's bad. Finally, an upstate New York police department fed up with lingering cold weather has placed winter under arrest. Oh boy! The Depew Police Department wrote Friday in a humorous Facebook post that it has arrested the season. Police say any more snow winter produces will be held against it in court. The department also called for Groundhog Puxicani Phil to yeah. turn himself in for predicting six more weeks of winter. That's twice now. We have two different stories rodent. of the police looking to arrest a rodent. D- there's They're not- turning on Puxicani Phil. How do you put little cuffs on that guy? I'm not sure. Police joke, well, zip ties. On those little, on yeah. those little Just get hands? Diff- different sizes of zip ties and you don't have to worry about He'd it. He'd probably need like. Three zip ties. Right. Just because he's got, he's a big guy. Police joke that they're willing to look past winter's most recent transgressions if it works with the department. New York has experienced wintry weather this month and high winds and caused power outages, as many other parts of the country have. Wow. We can arrest winter now, apparently. Don't know how that's going to work. No. Excited for the arraignment, though. <laughs> hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about healthcare. Uh, why is it so darn complicated? And what will Amazon's entry into the healthcare world, uh, how will that impact the rest of us? You know, Amazon's pretty good at uh, helping you shop online, right? Do you think they could help us buy our healthcare online? We'll talk about it straight ahead.
Earlier this year, Amazon announced that they would be partnering up with different companies to improve health care for their employees and to lower health care costs. And, uh, you know, is, is this something that we should all be paying attention to? I would say yes. Our guest this morning is no stranger to our show or the subject. Here to speak with us about this topic uh, is the former president and CEO of a health insurance company and a professor of health care finance at Case Western Reserve, uh, J.B. Silvers. Thank you so much for being with us today, and welcome back. Great. Thanks, Matt. Good to talk to you. So this this is a weird uh, a weird thing. Amazon, the kind of the... I guess the gold standard of of helping people shop online is now saying that they're going to be entering the the healthcare system really I guess by providing better healthcare for their for their employees, right? But talk about their partnerships, who are they partnering up with and why should we care about any of this? Well, they're partnering partnering with JP Morgan uh, for one and Berkshire Hathaway for another. So wow. Jamie Diamond and and uh and Warren Buffett. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And by the way, big companies too. They, these these organizations between the three of them, there's a there's hundreds of thousands of employees through those organizations. Yes, they're all large companies. Uh, Amazon's gotten enormous now, and the others are not small at all. So, lots and lots of people. So they've got a, a very good base to start with of their own employees. And they're also have to be self-insured. So all that they spend on health care comes right off their bottom line. They've got a strong incentive to do this. Now, you wrote an article in theconversation.com about uh, how this could end up being a major disruptor in the health care system because you, you, you really have, uh, you have Amazon, a major sales organization, J.P. Morgan, uh, Understanding Finance, Berkshire Hathaway that owns a lot of companies, um, Talk about how this could upset the healthcare system, and is there something bigger going on than them just trying to create something for their own employees? Well, that's the big question. They have not announced what they're going to do, so all, everything everything is speculation at this stage. But I can imagine them sitting around the three of them sitting around playing bridge. And they think <laughs> they're all bridge players. Are they really? Yeah. <laughs> Let's, this is awful. You know, we're paying way too much, and it goes up too fast every year. Let's figure out how to do something. We know how to do it. Let's figure out how to make it work. So um, the disruption, it's hard to tell what it would be, but anytime Amazon even looks at another industry, everybody reads disruption because they've done it successfully in so many places now. But most of that's been on retail. So the the difference here is that most of healthcare, uh, a lot of the the underlying nature of the way of the way employer based policies work, is business to business, not business to to consumer. So what are the, what's their role? Well, it's mainly going to be in using their electronic awareness, um, getting people to choose more carefully, help, helping people to shop among the alternatives, the stuff that they do. Mm. right now really well. Wow. Um, Berkshire Hathaway is, and J.P. Morgan, for that matter, are both strong in finance and insurance. Yeah. Um, so those those private companies, they know how to deal with those excess risks. What they don't know is how to deal with things together. So um, my guess is there's a bigger story going on mm. here that's behind it, that maybe, uh, maybe that is the real disruption is 
changing the paradigm of how we're going to be organizing healthcare. Well, and and maybe for just the rest of us, it might help that you explain in your article, you talk about how most insurance isn't really insurance anyway. And so maybe talk about that. What What is really going on when we are, uh, you know, getting insurance through our organization and paying our co-pays? How, what are we really paying for, really? Well, there are two or three things you're getting when you talk to an insurance company. They, they, the one you obviously know about is, is insurance. You're taking care of risks. But you don't have to have that many people in a pool to get rid of the highs and lows. Uh, 100, 200, 300 employees is plenty for the, the really sick patients, the employees, to, to be balanced out by the over larger mass of well patients. So you don't need to pay somebody else to bear that risk when you get to be above a, a fairly small size. So what you're buying from an insurance company, when that card that you carry around your pocket is really shows that they've contracted with a network um, and then they, they know how to pay claims. So they basically are doing transactional kinds of things for you. That's valuable, and it's something the employer doesn't want to do. So you buy those services from somebody else. But those services aren't done very efficiently. Uh, you avoid some state regulation by doing that because you're not an insurance company. States regulate insurance. So ERISA is the federal federal law that lets you get out from underneath insurance uh, regulation, and that's valuable. So you avoid some taxes and some other things, uh, and you can shape it to whatever you want. So you can change the benefit structure. You can do other sorts of things, and companies have been reasonably creative in doing that, but they've had to rely on these outside people, the insurance companies. The important thing is these three are not insurance companies. <laughs> That's that makes interesting. a difference. Yeah. They're doing something different. But the, I guess they could be doing what uh, Blue Cross – or is Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, that is an insurance company? It's an insurance company. That started out as sort of the prototype insurance company. They're, they're sort of the GMAC or the Chrysler finance of the, of the healthcare world. Hospitals, when they, the price of hospital care got to be high enough – said, we need to finance this over a larger body. So they created this pooling mechanism. Hmm. Over the years, that pooling mechanism was very simple. It was anybody who wanted to sign up got the same rate. But that sort of fell apart when commercial insurance companies came in and said, you know, we can, we can carve off this one healthier group and, treat, and charge them less money. And so the, the, the what's called community rating fell apart. So now now they're like everybody else. They sell individual policies, they'll sell group policies, and they mostly do this uh, what's called administrative-only contract. They make contract with employers to provide uh, contracting services with provider networks and to pay the bills. Mm. It's interesting how much of this is just bill management, bill pay and yeah. bill collection versus actual because the the, the the hospitals provide the health care, uh, but then you really have these companies that are just pushing papers and and getting the money from the companies to cover the costs. Well, but that's a very valuable resource, yeah. and it's something people don't do. So, you know, a manufacturer doesn't make all the parts. They buy some from outside. They don't. They may not even have their own cleaning service. They may contract with somebody to come in and do that or their cafeteria. So contracting out isn't isn't bad. The differential thing is you contract out to people who can do it better than you, who have more expertise or a broader get economies of scale or something else like that. 
and that's where that's where the industry hasn't done a very good job. You know, we've got some major market imperfections. And as I've thought about this since I made this announcement, I think I think what we're seeing here, and again with some of these strange combinations that have been announced of insurance companies and drug com- drug stores and other things, Humana and, and uh, uh, CVS and the others, is a restructuring around some market imperfections, some some real inefficiencies hmm. that exist, and um, we don't know how that's going to settle out. And I think this is another one of those. So um, it, they're disruptors, and yet in the end they could be. I mean, if if you start to fix some of the major market imperfections or improve the efficiencies, then it seems like that'd be good for everyone. Yeah, and and this is a, like a, a it's a, like the next step. Uh, the consolidations happen in healthcare happened for three big reasons so far. I think one is market power. Uh, hospitals got together and created big systems so they could bargain with the insurance companies better, and that worked. You know, they got they pushed back. They're consolidating. Other things are happening. You're getting doctors involved in all because of reactions to risk. Right. We're asking people to take on a lot more risk, and you have to have more more of a critical mass to do that. The next wave, I think, is around inefficiencies, the, and, and I'd call that transactions cost, that are just not very good. The following wave, and we're in the middle of this one, too, is let's do a better job with actual medical care, you know, yeah. figuring out how to actually do it better. That's not what this is about. Or that's the next one that's going to come. This is about inefficiencies, I think. Interesting. The two that I see these guys dealing with that are sort of below the waterline, one is um, the middlemen that, that don't add much value and are taking too much out of the pie. And the two that are sort of obvious behind, largely around these other mergers rather than this one, but I think this one too, are pharmacy benefit management companies, which are beginning to get in the news more, um, and brokers and, um, and consultants for, for employers that haven't made it in the news. Both of those two entities, and this is drawing back on my insurance company days, um, don't, don't provide as much value as they should for what they charge. Um, the, the drug companies are trying to make the pharmacy benefit management companies into bad guys. Uh, and we've always been a little concerned about whether the brokers are really operating in our benefit or in somebody else's benefit, the dueling both sides of the transaction. Those are both inefficiencies. These guys are sitting around, I think, and getting advice from uh, folks and thinking of it themselves and saying, you know, we don't need either one of those. Hmm. We can cut both of those out of this thing, and we can save money that they're taking out of the out of the uh, to the value chain in ways that uh, are going to you know, add up to 10, 15, 20% of the total pie. Wow. That's real money. That is. Well, especially when you think of these players that are involved. Uh, we're speaking with J.B. Silvers, who is uh, a past CEO of a health insurance company and a professor of healthcare finance at Case Western Reserve. He's been on the show two or three times walking us through everything healthcare because it's such a complicated mess. In fact, it's interesting. Was it Warren Buffett that called this? The, the whole kind of the health care issues uh, that we're dealing with and the inefficiencies, is that what he described as the tapeworm yeah, issue? That's a great, great phrase. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It just kind of lives off of you and just it's just a taker. Well, that's why I've, I've sort of been thinking, well, tapeworm, tapeworms are things that they are sort of invisible. They're inside your body doing bad things, you know, and yeah. eating you up. So what is it about this? Well, he, he didn't actually say 
that it's the doctors and hospitals that are really the cause. And frankly, they really are. You know, they're, it's costing too much to provide the care. But the tapeworm could be your body cells, but it also could be this foreign body that's living inside you doing things you don't really want. I mean, he didn't really say we're going to go after the muscle tissue and the heart, Mm. uh, which they may when they will want to do by using their leverage. But but I do think that that some of this is about transactions cost. Again, I've been thinking, you know, what's, what's, what's going on here? Uh, famous economist Ron Coase got the Nobel Prize in 91 for pointing out that industries get organized around transactions costs, that we we integrate, we consolidate, we do, we, and now with the Internet, we break things apart around how much it costs to get to get things done. Right. So we have integrated steel companies that do things together, and then we had integrated auto companies, and then we break them up and we get suppliers coming from all over because the transaction cost, mainly in this case transportation, is a lot less than it used to be. I think we're having a restructuring around how much does it cost to contract with the drug companies for the pharmaceuticals we need. That's a biggie. How much does it cost for the company that's buying health and health care for their employees and the providers that are giving it? How much does that cost? And that's the brokers. Mm. So we're going to have some of these middlemen that are transaction costs that are – that's where I'd be most concerned if I were in one of those – in the shoes of one of those people. And the insurance companies. The insurance companies are middlemen. Yeah. Um, do we really need to have the really complicated claims payment process we have? Well, Amazon and PayPal and people like that have figured out how to make it pretty transparent. You know, now can they do that in healthcare? It's a much bigger nut. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, but you can see how they could they can think, well, we can we can make a, you know, we can make a stab at this and maybe change things. And it seems like like just with what you're saying, if we get more clarity on the transaction costs and we can actually see the numbers better and more clearly, which which these guys uh, Amazon um uh, J.P. Morgan and uh, whoever's uh, oh Berkshire, Berkshire they, yeah, they're they're pretty good at managing the numbers and gathering the data and getting yeah. the choices out there. Then then it's almost like you know it's you know we're we're pulling back the curtain a little bit and then we can compare apples to apples. Well, the big one is Amazon and the fact that the insurance companies are trying to do this when you go in to get an MRI or something, they pre-approve it. And they'll tend to tell you, and by the way, this your hospital is going to charge X thousand for this thing, and you can go down the street to XYZ cut rate place and get it for X hundred. Mm. You know, they already try to do that. Well, that doesn't work very well because the system has to be integrated, and I want my hospital to know what my, my, my images look like rather than some guy that's got to ship it over to the hospital later. But... The fact that Amazon makes shopping so easy and they make comparisons so easy, they can do even that comparison a lot better than than Mm. the the typical insurance company. And there's no question they've got that in mind. So when I want to choose between centers of excellence and I want to look at the quality versus versus the we've the, the Medicare's tried this. They've got uh, hospital compare and nursing home compare and a bunch of things out there. They haven't made much difference because hardly anybody goes and looks up what is it. What's the quality outcome? The right. main reason is they don't have the cost too. 
Yeah. So the, the assumption is the cost is the same. Well, it's not all the same. <laughs> so so that, that they don't they only do half the shopping there. When and Amazon wants to do the whole thing. When do you sense that we'll see an impact of any of this? I mean, I guess they have to formally say they're going to get into it. Um, but is this something we'll, we could see in the next couple years, or is this five years, ten years down the road? Oh, I think Amazon has got a reputation for disrupting industries pretty rapidly. I mean, they're, they're changing the clothing industry now. They, they started with books. That's true, huh? And completely changed the book industry. Yeah. I remember buying my first book on Amazon when they were nothing, you know, thinking, I thought at the time, I thought, oh, this is big news. These guys are going to change everything with this. Well, they changed the book industry. They're changing the publishing industry, the music industry, and now the clothing industry and shopping uh, for groceries and everything else. They, they, uh, the, the, everybody goes to Amazon yeah. first. That's where you go. They're, they and, changed Walmart. I mean, they're competing and, and, now and with Walmart. Exactly. And so you now Walmart's back in the, in the thing. We're thinking, well, how are we going to play this game? Mm. So, and Nordstrom's just in the business. I mean, they're, everybody's got to be on the web. Yeah. And it's because of Amazon. They're the disruptor. So amazing, um, you know. And the fact is, insurance companies have tried to do what these people are probably wanting to do, but they haven't been very effective at it yet for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and employers have maybe wanted more of this, but they didn't know what to ask for because they don't know this business very well. Right. Right. Oh, wow. Well, JB, we appreciate you. This is great insight, I think, for all of us to, to better understand what's going on and the, the next front on the healthcare line. It looks like inefficiencies and in transaction costs. Eventually, we'll get to better medical care, <laughs> which is hopeful, right? But to Amazon, man, they're making a move. JB Silvers, thank you again. Again, remember, JB is a, is a past president of a health insurance company and CEO, and also a professor currently of healthcare finance at Case Western Reserve University. Great uh, insight, and obviously his dog. He's working his dog. His dog probably wants to get out for his walk. We will uh, continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on the program to give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Label! Welcome back, folks. It is April 10th, and because it's April 10th, we've got to let you in on the little secret. Today is National Siblings Day. National Siblings Day, the day we need to celebrate our siblings. Uh, April 10th is um, the day that you, you really need to appreciate that incredible gift from God. If you have a brother or a sister, you understand that life wouldn't be the same without them. Um, you know, obviously some tortured you. I had three sisters that, and I was the baby, and they took as they took great care of me. They used to hold me down, though, by the way, and brush their long 1970s hair over my face, uh, which now makes me hate hair. But other than that, uh, love my siblings to death, think they're incredible. And uh, today's the day you're going to want to give them a call, text them, do whatever you can to help them understand what a great uh, and important uh, resource they were for you in your life. Um, Think of all of the things that your siblings may have taught you. Now, some of them, obviously, (laughs) dramatic, depending on 
uh, where you fit. Uh, boy, it's too bad Jeff's not here today. Um, Jeffrey Liam Simpson always had fun stories about his brothers, um, you know, taking him to town. And uh, but I I had a I had sisters that that literally would they were caregivers, they were protectors, they took care of me. I had a sister that uh, basically followed a prompting once. Um, she was supposed to pick me up. And uh, just didn't feel right that she was going to go run an errand, pick me up and then run the errand, um, but just didn't feel right about it. So decided not to come pick me up, I believe, is how the story goes. I was young, and uh, she ended up getting in a car accident, and it it hit the side of the car where I would have been back in the day before we cared about seatbelts, really, or, you know, talking about anyone wearing them. We always had them rattling around the seats, but never were using them, and um Honestly, it it probably protected me, or I think she may have taken me home and then went to run this errand. So thank heavens for uh, siblings that do watch out for you, that do care for you. I remember vividly going with my sister as it was her, uh, my second sister, as it was her turn to watch and take care of me, but she was a very social sister and wanted to get to her friend's house, so she took me on the bike. I remember uh, riding along with her. I remember playing with my sister in the backyard, and she really wanted to do an obstacle course. And I'm like, let's just play, let's just play ball, let's just throw a ball around or kick a ball around. She's like, no, we have to build an obstacle course, and we did it her way, and she broke her foot. So you know, that's just how families work, and we we stay together. We go to our hospital trips together. I remember. Uh, them coming to ball games of mine. I remember um, them supporting me as I went on my LDS mission. I just over and over and over, families, they matter, right? And today is the day that you can actually do something about it. You have a reason today to celebrate your siblings. So take a little time, write them a text, send them an email, get them on the phone, and thank them for being your sister or your brother as we celebrate National Siblings Day. I have a million stories. You have a million stories. I wouldn't know uh, the music bands or the bands Chicago or Bread or uh, Elton John or Neil Diamond if it hadn't been for my sisters, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that. If it hadn't been for my sisters, when I ran into the back of a Jeep riding my bike as I was mesmerized watching my feet spin below me and I ran right into the back of a Jeep, I wouldn't have had anyone to pick me up off the ground, but my sisters were there. And so uh, siblings, they matter, and you matter as a sibling. And sometimes I wonder if we haven't – we think we may have outgrown each other. We don't need each other as much. But honestly, you know, if it it came down to somebody getting sick, somebody needing help, somebody going into surgery, we worry when it's our family and our loved ones. And so today of all days, let's look out for each other. Let's do what we can to – to take care of each other, and now you have a reason. More than ever before, you have a reason for why you need to take care of each other because you know what? It's National Siblings Day. So just a little shout-out to the siblings. And if you don't have siblings, borrow some. Some days I'll let you use mine. You know, those days those sisters were just hovering over me, watching everything I did, chasing down every girl I ever brought home, scaring them out of the house. Scary. Families are forever, folks. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Everybody needs to belong. They need to feel like they belong. And so uh, we've, we're going to revisit an interview we did with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an assistant uh, associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. Dr. Willoughby, folk research uh, and all of his work focuses on young adult dating and relationship patterns. And we began the interview by talking about the need to belong and what that actually means. When we talk about a need to belong, we're talking about almost this this need to have other people care about us and, and be looking out for our well-being. Yeah. We, we, we have this desire to have other people want to want to to know what's up with us and want to know what what we need in our life on a day to day basis. Yeah. And, and so really, it's it's is it something different than having needing a friend? It, it can be a friend. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of goes based on which part of our life. We're at. If right. you look at younger kids, particularly adolescents, that need to belong in social circles with peers is huge, mm-hmm. right? That's where we get a lot of yeah. it. We, we don't want our parents to give us that anymore. Right. We That's want weird. from our friends. Um, as we get later in life in adulthood, it, it oftentimes is romantic relationships, and whether it, it's marriage or, or other relationships in our life. So it starts too, though, as a kid, as a as a child, I want to belong to my parents. I want right. my parents to, so they provide that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this gets into that whole. This gets into the attachment issues yes. and the need to 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 know you're safe. You mm-hmm. belong to somebody that you're safe there to grow and develop. Right. I'm safe. Someone will take care of me. Mm-hmm. Right. Because even though we we all innately want to take care of ourselves, we have that survival instinct. There yeah. is also this this need to want other people to look out for me too. That someone else will be there for me. Someone else will have my back. What happens when we don't feel like we have that? Mental health, depression. Yeah. Anxiety. Um, in fact, a, a lot of those kind of very basic mental health issues that a lot of people have are, are based in loneliness. That's usually how it gets manifested, mm. as people describe. I'm just lonely mm. all the time. I don't feel like I have, I don't feel like anyone understands me. Um, but it's usually based in those attachment issues and, and that, that desire to belong to, with other people. How do you? How do you fix that? I mean, a lot of that is that's that there is mental health 101, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if somebody has this, you might be more detached, you might be less likely to find a healthy relationship, right. yeah, pull away too easy. Yeah, well, it, it depends because this can range. I mean, yeah. you can go all the way to someone that's really struggling with this that might need professional help and a therapist to help them work through some of those issues. Um, but really, the other thing this gets into is, is all this research we have on the power and benefit of long-term marriages. Hmm. We know that people that are married are healthier physically and mentally, and and a lot of that is you've got someone there for you that's got your back. You've got that sense of belonging, at least if it's a healthy relationship, um, and th- that's that's why marriage is so powerful for so many people. Mm. I mean, it really is when you think about – but they also get boring, I guess, too, because so, <laughs> you would think that once you're married, you finally have this one person that you know has your back. You can always go to them. But then maybe we fade. We fade in that relationship. Yeah. What happens there? A little bit. It, it, it changes yeah. over time. But we, the other thing we know about marriages that last for several decades is they become much more based on commitment. There's that safety. There's I, I know that person, even if it's, again, a little boring maybe. Yeah. I know that person's there for me. They understand me more. And this, this is actually very powerful for men. In particular, really, again, back to that research about the benefits of marriage for men—that's particularly true. And one of the interesting things we see when people get married, 
a lot of women tend to keep their social circles. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of men drop them. Yeah, you know, I, they'll, I got they'll keep all I for, need. <laughs> yeah, I've, and they put a lot of their emotional investment in their wives, a lot of their social needs into their wives. That's the person that I can come talk to. That's the person I can come confide in about my day, about my struggles, you know, even though we're men. So we only do that a little bit, but yeah. that's that person I can focus on. And interestingly, it seems like then, so the marriage relationship is distinct from just any even cohabitating dating relationship, romantic relationship, mm-hmm. because because we have a commitment? What's the difference? Yeah, commitment is, is huge. One of my uh, colleagues out at the University of Denver, Scott Stanley, has, has oh, written him. a lot about this. Yeah, he's this. been on the show a couple times. Yeah, and, and he, he talks about the power of that commitment to someone, that the knowing that I, if I mess up, you're kind of stuck with me. And it sounds kind of, you know, like, well, I don't want you to be stuck <laughs> yeah. with me. Deal with but, it. <laughs> yeah, but there is something about knowing that in my uh-huh. head, that we are committed to each other. We've made those vows um, to each other, and so I can rely on you. That's huge. Yeah. So so if we're in a relationship, and let's say we're married, and we we don't necessarily feel – we feel like this need – this this attachment, this need to belong is slipping. Mm-hmm. What do we do? What do we – is it fixable? It is. Yeah, it's definitely fixable. And this is actually, again, a lot of the – basic relation advice you hear out there connects back to this, things like date nights Mm -hmm. and things like just talk, spending time talking and reconnecting with each other um, can redevelop that, that bond, that sense that we, we know each other, we understand each other's lives, um, that, that you're the person I come and talk to about my fears and my anxieties. And so, so being open with Mm -hmm. those things too. That's huge. And and it it is. So if you're not seeing that connectedness, then you probably need to Get serious about it. Yeah. And, and back to the date night ideas, I think some people get this idea of, well, I need to date my spouse, and so that means we need to go have fun and go to a movie and go right. to dinner. And Keep it exciting. Yeah. It's, it's not really about what you're doing. It's about what you're doing while you're on that date. Are we getting away from the kids? Are we getting away from everything and talking about our lives, about what's going on, and, 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 and again, having that time to connect with yeah. each other? I mean, it's almost like it's... We always think we get bored with our spouses, mm-hmm. but it's really more we just feel kind of disconnected. Right. And the so the, everything you're saying about those date nights, those are kind of predictable. Let's just go talk, mm-hmm. and but let's let's actually talk and be vulnerable. Right. And the being talking and vulnerable actually will create more connectivity than having a really fun date. Oh yeah. You know, water skiing. Yeah, because you can go do something really fun with your kids or uh-huh. with a coworker or with yeah. someone else. It's it's those deeper conversations we can have with our spouse that makes the relationship unique. This is different than when I do those type of things with everyone everyone else. And that was Dr. Brian Willoughby, again, an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand why and how uh, how we handle this need to belong. Think about it just as as a fellow human – I, everybody needs to know that they're safe, they're secure in life and in their uh, group, in their family. And imagine the impact that that could have the day that uh, y- you don't feel that. Boy, what 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 um what am I supposed to think when I know I don't belong in a family? Or I don't feel I belong. I don't feel like I belong in a community, in a group, in a neighborhood, at my school. I don't belong. Uh, you can see how people get desperate, and then those desperate uh, moments create some pretty uh, desperate uh, lives. So anyway, interesting stuff. Boy, by the way, speaking about lonely, listen to this. A woman gets a $10,000 voucher after being bumped off a United Airline flight. 
A Washington, D.C. woman says she received a $10,000 travel voucher from United Airlines after she was urged to give up her seat on an overbooked flight. And if you haven't been flying lately, this is becoming kind of the norm uh, of the airlines. They they pack it deep and sell it cheap, and then they pay ten grand, I guess, to get you to get off the plane. Allison Priest uh, adds, United offered her a voucher following complications with her seat on a recent flight from D.C. to Austin. I never asked for a larger amount. The agent just escalated quickly. She told the Washington Post Friday, Price said that she initially was offered $2,000 voucher and the next for the next available seat on another flight and added that the airline employee eventually just told her she could be offered up to a $10,000 voucher for her troubles with and no firm plans, but I'm thinking I'm going to Hawaii, Price said. So one thing you can do is you, you can hold out. You can be sure it's a little lonely because you're the one that just has to walk off the plane or not get on the plane as all your friends and others are leaving. But man, if you've got uh, some free time and a little bit of a, and maybe some open, you know, life, go for 10 grand on United Airlines. By the way, that may not be the number they want out there. They'd probably rather just give you a $200 voucher and, you know, a little coupon to Cinnabon. That would be nice. I mean, who wouldn't take that? Oh, I have to say, like, United is... They've they've gotten a little beating on their reputation yeah, lately. Had, this is they've had a hard couple of years. A ten thousand dollar voucher sounds like probably one of the best PR now, things they could do right now. Everyone out there is going to be asking for the ten thousand dollar voucher. Sorry, best I can do is Cinnabon coupon. Um, that's why we do the show to give you these great little bits of advice. So now, next time you're asked to to bump, hey, be willing to bump. Maybe it might even be worth you planning a little travel bump into your plans. Take one extra day, call it the bump day, and you and your spouse would be willing to give up two seats and pick up five grand, $5,000 voucher. Then you really could travel anywhere, maybe, you know, anywhere. If you got to $10,000 one, you could pretty much go anywhere in the world, couldn't you, for ten grand? Anyway, doing what we can to help you make your life easier, one flight at a time, one $10,000 voucher at a time. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Wow. <laughs> Thanks. Your voice is changing. Yeah. It's nice know. to see you're growing up finally, I'm Matt. going through that change, that special change. Welcome to the program. So much to cover today. We will be talking about burnout. Are you at risk of burnout? No. Okay, moving on. <laughs> burnout, by the way, increases the the odds increase if you feel engaged into your work. If you right. are one of the engaged employees, one in five, so 20% of engaged employees have a risk of burnout. By the way, apparently 70% of employees aren't engaged anyway. Is that what causes the burnout? Yeah. Is the one person is so engaged in and everyone else is like, meh. Well, and maybe that if 30% of the employees in the country are engaged, maybe they're carrying a bigger load hmm. than they should. Because, you know, if your coworkers aren't as engaged, then you might feel more of a compelling need to do more, to be more, to stay longer, to make stuff happen. 
Anyway, it's a uh, it's a pretty big deal. So we'll be getting into that today about engagement and also the risk of burnout. Uh, speaking of burnout, DC is uh, it's in a burnout phase. This is really? getting this is getting to a really big level for the president of the United States, where his now his personal attorney has had in another investigation FBI come in mm-hmm. and start. Uh, raiding his office, basically. But some of the documents would be documents that might be tied to other investigations. <laughs> That's enough to make you get burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Or launch missiles at certain countries. Oh, boy, Syria. <laughs> you picked a bad week, Syria. So let's get to the headlines, Terry. What uh, What's going on in D.C.? What should we be paying attention to? In a meeting of military leadership Monday to discuss the serious, ongoing serious situation, President Donald Trump addressed the FBI raid of Michael Cohen's home and office, telling reporters it was, it was a disgraceful situation. He also called special counsel Robert Mueller's team the most conflicted group of people I have ever seen, adding that many people have said you should fire him. He goes, we'll see what happens, he continued. Mueller's not involved in the uh, the search of the office or the home other than oh. he found something and handed it over to the Department of Justice and they are the ones that Yeah, he's the not investigating it. Yeah. He just he I mean that's what you'd have to do if you found something. There's some conflation happening there. Yes. Trump also claimed that this was a witch hunt constantly going on calling the raid an attack on our country what we all st- and what we all stand for. Yeah. Law and order cuz he's the law and order president, right? Well, he's saying, "Hey, other people have done other things, and you, you, we oh, didn't right. investigate Hillary or well, anybody. He went off on Hillary in the emails, too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, he criticized Attorney General Jeff Sessions in his remarks, saying that no one is looking at the other side, referring to Hillary Clinton's emails and other issues. The search does not appear to be directly related to Mr. Mueller's investigation, but likely resulted from information he had uncovered and gave to prosecutors in New York, the New York Times reports. Wow. Other news, special counsel Robert Mueller is investigating a 150000 donation to the Trump Foundation made by a Ukrainian steel magnate during the, com- the uh, campaign in exchange for a conference talk. The probe appears to be part of Mueller's investigation into foreign funds to the president and his associates leading up to the 2016 election. So during the 2015, when he was, was declared a he candidate, declared, yeah. he then took $150,000 from an oligarch yeah. to do a 20-minute talk at 2 in the morning. Over Skype. But you can go find it, apparently. You can go find yeah. the talk. So it happened. Yeah. It's just, it seems like... Where's the money from? Maybe that's not where you... You don't collect money from Russia while you're a candidate for president of the United States. Yes. And and then you, they he ran it for some odd reason through his charity, mm-hmm. which the charity has been known to be non charitable, non charitable, or paying off other. I believe a things. guy from the Washington Post won a Pulitzer trying to figure all that wow. out. Well, I mean, again, well, his charities and it's just you know. and what, what I thought he I thought President Trump said that he had not ever dealt with Russia ever. Right. This was Ukraine. Yeah, but... Well, it might have been a Russian steel magnate, but it's different. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. Ukraine. Facebook, they're going to be on trial, so to speak, today. It's not really trial. It's, it's, a, pub- just, it's a public hearing. It's a public hearing. The public trust and Facebook plummeting in the wake of privacy scandals with the company's chief executive isn't worried. Mark Zuckerberg said that he has no intention of resigning from his post at Facebook. 
And uh, even in the face of the federal investigation and calls for significant changes to the social media platform's privacy policies. In an interview with The Atlantic, Zuckerberg said that the company has worked on a lot of hard problems over the last 14 years building Facebook. He goes, I'm very confident that we're going to be able to work through this issue or these issues, Zuckerberg announced Monday that Facebook would deploy an election research committee to assess how the platform could be used to manipulate elections and exploit user data. Zuckerberg will testify today before Congress and to address privacy privacy concerns, and he has no friends there because everyone is looking at this as a campaign issue. Well, So they need their commercials. Again, it seems like we're everyone's like mad at Zuckerberg. For things that we all kind of knew they were doing, kind of. Right. So, are we all faking? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's just blind rage. He's Is the it, target right now. And there's, but now some of this has to do with really the fact that Facebook, people believe, helped get President Trump elected. That's really the linchpin of the anger, yes. Yeah. I mean, they should be mad about the fact that we're getting more ads on Facebook, it right. feels like. Yeah. Quite a bit more. I mean, that's really what I'd be ticked about. <laughs> I love this. Uh, some good news. Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois gave birth to her third child Monday. Oh, great. Becoming the first U.S. senator to give birth while in office. According to the statement, Duckworth is recovering well. Brian, Abigail, and I couldn't be happier to welcome little Mali, Mali, M-A-I-L-E, Mali? M-A-I-L-E. Mali, Malai. Malai Pearl. You, you don't want the word lie in your name, do you? Mm, Malaya. She's the newest addition to our family. She wrote in the statement, as tough as juggling the demands of motherhood and being a senator can be, I'm hardly alone or unique as a working parent of my children. Only make me more committed to doing my job and standing up for hardworking families everywhere. The statement went on. Yeah. Now, she's the uh, former uh, what pilot. I believe she lost her legs in the Iraqi right. war. Yeah. So she's in a, a wheelchair, and this is her third child, sitting senator. So she's making all kinds of firsts. Yeah, this is pretty cool. As this moves forward, and she'll she'll be back soon to do her work as and she continues on as a senator. Mali. Uh, finally, uh, you, you've heard of the wife carrying championships. Have you seen this before? No, but I've, my wife's been carrying me for years. This is this is a little different than that. Uh, with sl- a sliding dive worthy of a rugby try, oh, yeah. as it says, Chris Hepworth flung himself and his partner over the finishing line, become the UK wife carrying champion, <laughs> and now has his eyes set on the world title. The couple beat around 40 pairs over the quarter-mile course on Sunday in a race that was marred by the injury of one wife when her husband slipped in the mud and landed on her. The sport is open to any adult couple, married or not, with the wife, who required to weigh at least 110 pounds. Wow. On the British course, runners have to tackle hay bale obstacles and are showered with water by spe- spectators. Having set a course record of 1 minute 37 seconds, Hepworth and his partner, Tanisha Prince from London, plan to take up the chance of becoming or competing in the world finals in Finland. Wow. That's love right there. Wife-carrying champions. And Love they carry to go the, through that. Like, they carry that sounds the, so unpleasant. <laughs> the vast majority carry the wife upside down. Yeah, on their backs, and she's wrapped around their waist, uh-huh. and they just run. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an easier way to carry your wife. <laughs> I looked at my wife. I go, you, "How about this for a wife? Let's let's try this. It's a bonding couple. Well, I think, yeah, you could compete together. I mean, she's some like, people no. run marathons mm-hmm. together. Some maybe do a." Triathlon. There's those mud-filled obstacle courses that people run through for fun. For it some seems reason. like it's it would be the wife's idea. Yeah, she'd have to be on board literally. 
actually, I think about that, and it's like I would feel no sense of accomplishment from doing something like that. But well, it would be pretty funny. Well, you <laughs> you just read. On, you just read a book while you're on the back. Oh, well, that's true. Well, it's a little bit more involved than that. Turn on some podcasts. What I mean, does she do? Just hold on. She just holds on. And yeah, well, he, so that's. But but he's diving over hay bales, running through water, and so I mean. Do they rotate turns? I no. mean, this is an equal. It's a quarter. World. It's a quarter mile course. Do they have a carry your husband, or is that just a known fact that they're already carrying? Us? I think I think emotionally that that's already happening. So physically, it's the man's job. I just think it should go both ways. Well, if we're well, gonna true equality. What do you think, Becca? I think that sounds like should, as a team. You know, if you can carry each other, that sounds like a real that, accomplishment. That, now that's an accomplishment. All right. If she had to run half the race carrying him, hmm. then by the way, that would give hope to all of the smaller, you know, sized men. It would change the way both of you worked out and trained for it for sure. Totally, that's a great point. <laughs> there you go. Ah, the insights you don't get on any other show. You can join the carry your partner contest that we'll be starting right here at Brigham Young University. Have fun. It's going to be a good one. Up next, folks, we're going to be talking about burnout. And uh, what increases the risk of burnout? Is it just simply being an engaged employee makes you even more likely to burn out? Is that fair? Come on. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome back, folks. You know, employee engagement is a major concern for HR leaders around the country. Year after year, these managers and researchers discuss Gallup's shocking statistic that 7 out of 10 U.S. employees report feeling unengaged or disengaged uh, in their workplace. And uh, figuring out how to increase employee engagement has been a burning question for companies and consultants across the board. Here to talk with us today a little bit more about the study and how we can decrease our risk of burnout is Dr. Julia Moeller, who is an assistant professor for educational psychology at the University of Leipzig in Germany. Julia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Talk about uh, we've we've brought up this idea of engagement quite a bit on the show, um, and it, first of all, I guess it is is it is are, are the numbers from Gallup accurate? Is it really seven out of ten people are are disengaged or less engaged in their workplace? Well, I suppose that depends on how you define engagement, how you measure it. Um, I wouldn't say it's incorrect, but I would also like to point out that we found different numbers in our study. Um, so engagement, since it is a buzzword and many researchers are studying to investigate it, there are different definitions going on, mm. going around. Okay, so, so talk to, talk to us about your, yeah, how do, you, different ways. how do you define it? Well, we follow much of, we follow a, quite known engagement definition by um, Arnold Bakker, who is an, a, a professor in the Netherlands, who is very known in the field of engagement research. And we define engagement as a broad umbrella term that basically summarizes everything that you would find 
important about motivation in the workplace. And so it's, an, it's a multifaceted construct that um, includes physical aspects, cognitive aspects, and emotional aspects. And to, to sum it up in one sentence, it's like a positive, fulfilling work-related state of mind that is characterized by vigor, by dedication, and by absorption. Hmm. So they're motivated and, uh, in those variety of areas, physical, emotional, mental, um, uh, is, is, a pretty, is a pretty good definition of it. What are you learning about engagement? Um, because it seems like being motivated and, and feeling a vigor toward our work and an excitement toward our work, it seems like a positive thing. Um, but uh, are there some risks to engagement? Yes, both. On one hand, engagement is a positive state of mind. It's defined as a positive state of mind. And it's a a combination of everything about motivation that is supposed to be beneficial for work. And um, several studies have shown that engagement is beneficial for desired outcomes, such as work performance and um, business unit performance, but also safe working behavior and client satisfaction. So usually engagement is seen as a very desirable um, state of mind in employees, which is why, why so many people worry about how to boost engagement in employees. But on the other hand, um, there might be such a thing as too much engagement. Hmm. Um, or as Professor Arnold Bakker put it, high engagement is a peak and every peak might need also a valley or a low in order to be in balance. And what I mean is we have seen that in some employees, um, there are very high levels of engagement. They are totally fired up. They are very motivated to perform at their best. But at the same time, they do so at a certain cost. And the longer they are engaged, the more engaged they are, they might also develop uh, symptoms of stress and even symptoms of burnout. But that doesn't occur in all of the employees. So that goes back to your question, how how many people are engaged? Um, so we found that 41% of all employees in our sample were positively engaged, only engaged without any stress. But also 18.8%, so almost one out of five, had high levels of engagement and high levels of stress and burnout. And those are the people who we worry about because they have high engagement, but we wonder if it's necessarily a positive thing. Interesting. So one out of five uh, people are have high engagement and uh, have burnout. Yes, and More symptoms of burnout. Yeah, and so... Um, that's interesting. Is it, is it more, are these, is it just that they're doing more work and that's what's burning them out? Or is it just that they have like personalities that burn out? Well, we didn't look into personality, um, but usually a lot of the research on, on engagement focuses on resources and demands that people encounter at their workplace. And I think that's interesting because this is uh, what managers might have an influence on. So usually we read that um, high resources that people get at their work in order to perform at their best are positively related to engagement. So the more resources people get or uh, encounter, the more engaged they tend to be. 
Um, then on the other hand, there are demands which usually are supposed to relate to burnout or stress. Um, but since we found that there is this group of people who have high engagement and high stress and burnout levels, we also looked at the demands and resources they encounter and we found that these employees that we call engaged exhausted were also quite likely to encounter high demands and high resources in a combination at their work. Hmm. Is it um, is this job specific? Like I look at my job as when I'm on the air, I have I have a lot of um, demand, it feels like. I mean, I feel a lot of stress because you've got to constantly be on and be doing your job. Um, but then – so my job feels like that, but then I don't have much to do after my show except prepare for the next show. But I – and I can imagine a surgeon would have – uh, you know, if if they were in high demand, and even if they had a lot of resources, it would it would feel good. They'd be engaged, except over time, it could eventually just burn them out. That sounds plausible. So, are you saying that the fact that you get some downtime after your work yeah. helps you dealing with the higher does, demand? Yeah. Does the job? I mean, is this job specific? Uh, it seems like surgeons would have a higher incident of burnout anyway, just because of uh, their demand and what they're doing, versus somebody that's maybe um, doing another job that isn't life or death, or another job that isn't as intense. Yeah, I mean, we we know that um, the levels of burnout and stress tend to differ between industries and jobs. So, for instance, teachers and people working in certain um, service jobs and, for instance, hospitals and nurses, they are more likely than others to perceive or experience symptoms of burnout. Um, I can't tell you whether there are differences between people in terms of being at the same time engaged exhausted, I, w- I w- would assume so. And I think you have raised an important question, which is um, maybe it's not the high demands. Maybe it's really a question whether or not you can get a balance and a recovery after encountering those demands. It makes a difference between being positively engaged and being engaged with increasing levels of stress and burnout. Yeah. I mean, it's and I guess, too, it's, it, it's so... Fickle because it also has to do with how you handle stress, how you process, how you take your downtime, um, and so what. What are you learning that managers can do, Julia? What what? How can managers improve um, the engagement, but also uh, not overdrive the burnout? That is a very interesting question, and we are just at the beginning of understanding that. I think our uh, findings relating to the demand and resources give a good hint um, because I think it's really key to understand that the higher the demand, the higher is the likelihood of an employee to get stressed and eventually also experience exhaustion and other symptoms of burnout, no matter how engaged and passionate they are about their work. And I think that's often overlooked. We often think, um, we don't have to worry about people who are highly engaged and who people who say about people who say they love their job. And often they have so many positive emotions that they don't even worry about just themselves. Um, but the higher the demands and the higher, for instance, the workload or the closer a deadline, the more work you put into your uh, 
the more time you put into your work, the m- the more you also need some downtime, some recovery, um, some sleep, and maybe even some time with your family and friends to make up for all the time that you're absent at work, you know. So I think it's really this balance, and I think it would often help if managers kept in mind how high the demands are currently at their workplaces for their employees, and if they try to make up for their demands in, uh, in terms of increasing the resources. Um, because we usually think about demand and resources as something that should be in balance. And if the demands are really high because there's a deadline coming up and everyone is working like crazy, then it might be a good idea to make sure that at least they get something to eat over lunch and don't have to, you know, run out and run back or even stop eating over work. But um, having a manager who has these demands in mind and tries to meet them with increasing resources, I think, would help a lot. Absolutely. That's like a, um, as I look at it, but I guess that's the the key to management is you'd have to be able to to have clear communication and understanding of what's really going on with the team and every team. I mean, I'm right now here in the United States, we have tax day coming up in about a week yeah. or less. And so I imagine every accountant right now and their teams have major demands on them. Um, and if I were a manager of accountants, I'd probably be doing everything I could to get as many resources to them. And then, I, I too, I guess, even before the season for taxes start, build the resources, give them free time, off time, do whatever you can to to take care of them. But it's almost like we don't sometimes work that way in our organizations because, you know, we have other systems that are going on where – you know, people are only allowed so much vacation time. People are only allowed, you know, you've got to be here nine to five. Your schedule's set. and But it may not always flow with, you know, the way your industry works. Yes, that's right. There are also lots of jobs which require people to just put in extra work or you work on evenings, you work on the weekends, like researchers often work a lot and don't really necessarily monitor the time right. they put in. Um, but they also get a lot of freedom in deciding where to work and when to work so that they can at least pu- get the workload in agreement with other aspects of their life. And yeah. I think that's, that's also an upcoming debate. I have seen recently lots of um, newspaper articles talking about home office and whether or not people should at all be requested to come to work in an office if the work doesn't require it because people are starting to um, figure out that they have more resources at at home and um, don't lose so much time on the way of getting to work. So there are different new strategies being discussed that people hope would help them getting more resources. Yeah. Or making up for the demands that they encounter at work. And I think that's an interesting development. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Dr. Julia Muller, thank you so much for this insight. It really, I think it it, it opens a lot of uh, questions, I think, for all of us of how we manage our own demands, how we look at our own resources, 
and uh, and how we make it through this and stay engaged, but not to the point of burnout. Remember, Dr. Julia Muller is an assistant professor for educational psychology at the University of Leipzig in Germany, and uh, she's um, doing what she can to make our lives a little bit easier, I think, by understanding burnout. We'll continue this uh, lesson and, and uh, do a little coaching straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. You know, when you think of burnout, um, you know, sometimes you think of all these people that that uh, aren't motivated. They don't have a purpose in life. They, But when you listen to uh, Julia's numbers about the fact that burnout comes to the people that really tend to be most engaged, um, and then they, they don't... They don't take time for themselves. And I think a lot of us are – we're so driven. We so live in this world where we need to get the right grades. We need to – everything's pressure and we want to be the best. And and we, we even feel compelled to be the best because, you know, God would want it that way. He'd want us to be our best self. But God doesn't want you to be burnt out. <laughs> He doesn't want you to do more than you can do, does he? Is that how this works? Is no, no, you got to, no, sorry. Actually, he wants you just to be just a big mushy ball of nothing. That's how God works. Um God wants you to be in tune and in a connection with him. So to me, the what uh what maybe we need to figure out with each of our lives is how do we do some of this? For example, how do I stay uh, focused and connected to my purpose in life while simultaneously um, growing and, and knowing who I am and um, stretching myself and, and pushing myself harder to do more and to be more? How do I do all of that and not get burnt out? It, uh, it's, I, I guess the key to some of this is going to be, um, I guess, at some point in our lives, Knowing what matters to us, knowing what our yeses are, knowing what we need to do, what we need to work on, what we need to be. Um, So it's going to take a little bit of work. Uh, Interesting, some research on happiness shows that 48% of Americans consider themselves happy, right? And um, which doesn't seem that, I mean, I guess that's high, but 33% of Americans say they're very happy with their jobs. By the way, the happiest careers happen to be clergy, firefighters, and reservation agents, which to me is what? But when you look at clergy and firefighters and I guess reservation agents, they're outwardly focused. They're serving others. They're helping people uh, take care of and, and do things. They're 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 outwardly focused. They probably also, um, I know, for example, with firefighters. They spend only about 1% or 2% of their time actually fighting a fire. The other 98% of their time, they are probably preparing, working, exercising, anticipating, rejuvenating, getting healthy, you know, drilling, practicing, doing things like that. So I think each and every one of us could probably find a way to, 
take better care of our lives if we maybe thought a little bit more like a clergy member who's always looking to the bigger picture of God, or a firefighter who's always trying to prepare so that they can handle the fire. Some of us, though, don't have time to prepare for the fires because we're too busy fighting fires. And um, if you keep fighting the fires and never prepare for the fires, then eventually you'd eventually have, I'm betting, a lot of fires to handle, right? Maybe 60% of your time would actually be in firefighting instead of fire prevention. So look at your own balance in your own life. What percentage of your day is actually spent in true recreation, where you actually are recreating yourself, your sense of, uh, you know, your sense of health, your sleep, by the way, your restfulness, your mindfulness, your meditation. Do we have time for any of this? You know, some of us have got to work, and then we work. And again, you're going to pay one way or another here. You're going to eventually have to pay. It's sad, but it's uh, it's it's going to have to happen. There's a great um, definition by Dr. Sean Acor, who wrote the book on happiness, um, the happiness advantage. He, the 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 definition of happiness is the most accurate term for happiness is one that Aristotle used. It's eudaimonia, which translates not directly to happiness but to human flourishing. So, what if we blew up the idea that we as humans need to go for happiness, but instead we chose to just go for flourishing? Do you feel like at work you're flourishing? Or are you dying? Are you just, you know, imploding? And what can you do in your workplace to feel a more of a sense of flourishing? Probably would have to involve four or five areas at least. Physically, what can you do to stay on top of your game physically? Socially, how are your relationships at work? Emotionally, how do you feel about yourself in the work you're doing, your vision, your purpose, your passion. How do you feel about that? Uh, financially, is it cutting it for you? Is it is it paying off? Um, and um, professionally, are you being stretched? Are you growing? Are you developing? Are you being able to take this uh, this job to another level and be able to to truly be who you need to be? So that's just simply asking yourself physically, socially, emotionally, financially, um, and kind of I call it spiritually, are you connected to what you're doing in a way that it actually creates flourishing for yourself? And if it doesn't, hey, that's normal. That's normal, right? But the, the dilemma is at some point normal might lead to burnout. Only 40 – in her research, only 40 – percent, 41 percent of the people she studied are engaged. Uh, According to the Gallup organization, it's uh, only 30 percent of the people that the Gallup organization studied are engaged. But of those that are engaged, she found that 20 percent of those are engaged to the point of burnout. So you can have too much of a good thing, right? And uh, we, we probably need to watch out for that. Some other things I've realized and learned just in my own life, um, is is to make sure that I actually am using the strengths that I bring to the table. Um, there's certain things I don't bring to my job that it's not me, it's not my gift, it's not my strength. And if I spend all day doing my job and then trying to get better at the things I'm not good at, 
um, instead of being able to magnify the top four or five, six things that I do bring to the game, then we might actually find ourselves burning out even faster. Instead of using a strength that would rejuvenate us and actually feel us, make us feel passionate about what we do, we, a lot of us in our jobs might be spending a lot of time making up for our, our errors, making up for the things we're not as good at. And I wonder if that just might be the selection of our job. Maybe we aren't in the right job if we have to spend so much time getting so much better at it that you know we're almost running against the grain. I would love to see some research done on how people choose their jobs and if that impacts whether they are happy about it, whether they are feeling burnout. When I'm doing what I am uniquely qualified and gifted, not professionally skilled at because I've gone to school to learn it, but things that I am uniquely gifted at, I feel more passion than when I have to do things that I am not kind of inherently gifted at doing. And by the way, the same I found is true in my own parenting. It doesn't mean I won't need to learn stuff. I totally will. But there's also certain times in my parenting where I am actually using my God-given gifts, my God-given talents, and I bring those talents to that parenting moment, and it, it creates a complete new dynamic in my world with my children, right? I might not be the greatest at making dinner, so I'll go learn how to cook, but I will make dinner fun <laughs> for everyone, okay? So we'll have a fun dinner because that's kind of my unique gift, and I guess I could improve my cooking, but I could spend hours and hours improving how I cook, and it won't necessarily make me that much happier. Or I could also spend hours and hours at making it more fun and dynamic and exciting and interesting, and that actually does make it seem like less work. So one of the rules I guess I'd give all of us is let's figure out what our unique strengths are and our gifts are. I've talked about it on the show many times. There's a wonderful website. Go to AuthenticHappiness.org which is a, a it's Penn State University, and you can go on their website, AuthenticHappiness.org, take a test called the VIA test. It's the Character Strengths Test, and it will help you identify from number one to number 24 what your top 24 character strengths are. And hands down, I'm happiest when I'm living my top strengths, period. And by the way, my weakness, my weakest areas... I actually just use my strengths to mitigate those other areas that I'm not so good at. I use my creativity, my humor, my fun, my spirituality. I use my social intelligence as ways to mitigate the fact that uh, I don't have other strengths. And the research hands down shows that's what drives happiness. 93% of people that are happiest are happiest when they use their strengths 10 hours a week. And only one in four adults actually do so. So it's worth looking into, folks. It's worth checking out. So go to AuthenticHappiness.org to, to get into that. Uh, anyway, fun stuff. Interesting. We're all here to learn, doing what we can to make life a little bit better by our strengths and uh, by our engagement. This is The Matt Townsend Show. So we all need to belong, right? We want to feel like we're connected and to the world and that we belong and we are we 
are loved, right, by other people. And so Dr. Brian Willoughby, who is a regular on the show and associate professor here at the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, he was on the show a while ago talking about this need to belong. And we wanted to revisit it to give us all some more tools in how to manage our need to belong and our our marriages and the love we have with our significant other. So I asked him if it's normal to be in love with a person but not to like them in the moment. It's something when I when I teach my marriage classes, I've got a couple of mottos that I drill into their brains from the first day yeah. onward. And this is one of them. It's just because I love you forever doesn't mean I'm going to like you every day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's normal. That is. I can love yeah. you forever and be committed to being yeah. in, but I may not like you right now. Right. And it, it captures the day-to-day reality of real relationships that they're even in the best most romantic storybook relationships, there are days where you're going to look at your spouse and say, I don't like you. You right drive now. me crazy. You drive me crazy. And it's going to go the other way too. Yeah. Um, but we know there's there's lots of great research out there now um, that shows that relationships fluctuate up and down and, and every relationship has downs and then they tend to get better and then they stay pretty average for a while mm-hmm. and then you'll have a couple weeks that are awesome and that's that's just the reality of relationships. So, but what, if, if every human has a basic need to belong, mm-hmm. then how do they handle the idea that it's going to fluctuate and go up and down? Mm-hmm. Unless, like you said earlier, that they know you're committed. So somehow you have to emphasize you're committed. Right. And get them to believe that. Yeah. There's got to be things you do in your relationship that remind you of that commitment. You know, we have basic things like anniversaries Mm -hmm. and and, and other things like that. But it's got to be more regular. There's got to be little moments on a regular basis, you know, whether it's little words like I love you or other things that just show that person I'm committed to you and just to you. And daily, regularly. Yeah, regularly. Because yes. if they don't see the commitment, then when times get tough, they start to drift like, uh. Right, exactly. And then that creates anxiety and then maybe a fight or flight moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, then eventually over time, if if we don't have that, the negative stuff continues to brew and build. Mm-hmm. And, and then I start having doubts. Yeah. Are you actually there for me? And then we actually just look for evidence that proves you're not. Right. Because you, mm-hmm. you look, you're going with your family here. Yep. And it becomes You're doing that, this. that cycle, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, the, the fancy word we use for that is negative sentiment override. That's uh, our ooh. academic term, N- right? Neg- negative negative NSI. sentiment oh, oh, override. But basically what that means is that over time, if we have all these negative things that happen, I start interpreting everything that you do yeah. as a negative. In, in fact, just in my class last week, we were talking about this. And I give the example of, of knocking a water glass over at a dinner table. And, you know, just complete accident. My spouse knocks it over. But if I have that, I might look at that and say, well, great. Well, you're not going to clean that up because you never do anything. I'm going to have to do it. Here we go again. (laughs) Ruin another dinner. Ruin another dinner. You never knock over the glass when you make the dinner, only when I make the dinner. Exactly. And and that sort of little thing can can ruin a relationship. Oh, my heavens. And that's that's a natural tendency once you're kind of... Mm-hmm. in this fight-or-flight spiral. Yeah, exactly. The fearful, yep. which it all goes back to just wanting to belong. Right. But So this this whole thing could be cast. The die could be set from my parents. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that was the first relationship for most people where I learned, can I trust people that I love? Hmm. You know, were my parents, these these caregivers for me, were they there for me when I was crying? And this is, a, if you go back to the attachment stuff, yeah. this is very, very early on. But predict because I need to know that predictably my closest relationships 
are there for me, allow right. me to grow, mm-hmm. and I can go back to. Yeah, and and so I, I'm either going to learn that or I'm going to learn that, hey, the people that you're supposed to count on, you can't trust. And mm-hmm. then I'm going to just have to rely on myself. Or maybe it's inconsistent, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And so then what I'm going to learn is I'm going to push and push and push and yeah. hope that one of these times you reciprocate. And and some then get too clingy because mm-hmm. they're afraid of you leaving them. Yep. Some get kind of withdrawing and they just dismiss you. They just... They just are always mm-hmm. disconnected from you. Yes. Yeah. So one's aggressive, one's kind of detached. Yes. Or you could do a mix of all of them. Yep. Or you could be a little bit of all. <laughs> just enjoy all of them. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to use them, I like to use all of them. Yeah. Um, that's all, what you're telling me, though. That's all natural relationship stuff. These yeah. are natural relationship issues. So if somebody's doing that dance where they can't tell if their partner's in or not, mm-hmm. they're probably we could probably just know that somebody needs to know that they belong. Yeah, and that goes back to that open communication is that, you know, whatever partner I'm in, I am, if I'm the partner that's that's fearful that you're not committed to me, you're going to leave, or if I'm the partner that tends to withdraw and, 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 and disengage a little bit, I have to be open with my partner and, and talk about those fears and anxieties. And then my partner has to be understanding hmm. that I'm not perfect. You know, if I'm with someone that tends to withdraw, I have to be willing to say, okay, that's who they are, and they might not want to talk right now, but it's something we're working on together and individually. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing. And and yet, because it really it seems like it's, the, it's kind of the energizer behind a lot of our conflict, a lot of the divorce. Yes. Yes. The, that, that feeling of loneliness um, that sets in, um, again, with couples that become really unhealthy in their patterns, whether it's communication, whether it's conflict, eventually there becomes that that sense of loneliness. Yeah, I'm with that person. Yeah. We, we have this house together. We have these kids together maybe. But I don't feel like I'm connected. I've lost that, and it feels really, really lonely. Mm. And then there's that desire to, I need to go find that somewhere else, which is where a lot of affairs come from, um, or just I need to get away from this because it's yeah. oppressive for me. Yeah, and— I mean, I know guys that just get on these, you know, these cycling teams mm-hmm. and they just go cycle yeah. 30 miles a night yep. Yep. just because they don't have to think about it. Yeah, then. I can disappear into a hobby. I can disappear into video games. I mm. can disappear into work. You know, whatever it is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get somewhere else because I don't have to focus on this loneliness, this this emptiness. So if that's if that's the case, we we need to talk more about it. We need to maybe get more real about it. I mean, is there research we should read? Is there are there places? Does on Relate Institute are are there tools for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've actually done several blog posts about belonging and attachment and some of the latest research. You know, one of the things we're trying to do with that is is take the latest research studies that no one will read because they're boring. Right, they'll put you to sleep. Yeah, um, and translate them and do these nice little succinct blog posts. Like, hey, here here is what if you want to know what the latest research is on research. Here's what it is. And we just throw it up there for anyone that wants to read it. That's great. Um, but then we do have the assessment tools as well that, that you can take if you're worried about your relationship or you just want to know what your relationship is like. Um, we have attachment measures in Relate, and so that's part of the assessment. And so you can take it. And then in part of your report, it'll say, here's kind of what your attachment is looking like. Here's what your partner is. Mm. And here's how you go together. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And you don't have to be hopeless. Because right. if you're at an extreme level of this, mm-hmm. there's hope. Oh, yeah. Because – You've been doing a battle for 20-something years without ever knowing what the cause was. Right. Now you're now – you can start addressing the cause. Yeah. Knowledge is always power in relationships. So the first step is just understanding what's going on, and then it's just trying to work through it. 
day by day and, and, and trying to move forward and having goals and being okay with setbacks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, growing together with your partner. That's yeah. the biggest thing in marriage. What if it's just too – like what if you sense your partner has too big of a need? It's mm-hmm. still an attachment issue, but they're just – they're an aggressive attacher that mm-hmm. needs – they always need you. It's constantly needing you. Right. It's the same problem. Mm-hmm. It's just – it's just the extreme form. Right. Then you should have done a better job dating. Yeah. <laughs> you should have picked a <laughs> you better. Should have picked better. Right. But, I, you know, if you've got someone like that, you can you can be a facilitator then. And it, you, you still want to do all these things we're talking about and do things together. But maybe you have a, a partner that does still need a lot of peer interactions. And mm-hmm. so maybe part of my job is, hey, I'm going to set up a friend's night for you once yeah. a week. You know, because I know that's something that you need and I'm going to be I'm not going to nag about it. I'm not going to, you know, but it's going to be something we plan together. Instead of you just telling me you're disappearing and I'm not involved, I'm going to help facilitate a little bit. And and maybe I'll even be a part of it every once in a while. Um, And so it still becomes something we're doing together. It's still a joint goal we're working on. But now we can help you. You know, if 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 you're putting everything on me, Mm -hmm. I can share the wealth. Yeah, share it a bit. Oh, man, Brian, it's good stuff. I mean, it really, and again, to just think that it's pretty normal. Yeah. And the answers just end up being communication right. and be real about what's going on. Yeah. All of us have felt lonely. Oh, yeah. Even, even again, in the best families and the best relationships, everyone has those moments where they feel kind of alone, and that's perfectly normal. That uh, was Dr. Brian Willoughby an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand uh, the need to belong and and how we actually help and facilitate that for one another. Um, and by the way, it's not even just person to person, right? It's also uh, our animals. Um, why I bring that up, it happens to be uh, celebrate your dog, love your dog day today. So of, of all the things you need to make sure, it's, it's National Hug Your Dog Day. Go give your dog some love. Give it a little sugar, uh, puppy sugar love, and, um, and, and show your dog that you really care about him. That's another way to feel like you belong because the neatest thing about an animal is whenever you come home, they are the only ones that seem glad to see you some days, if you know what I mean. How come they're the only one that runs to the door and cares? Anyway, animals, uh, another great way to uh, enjoy life. Doing what we can on the show to give you the tools, the information, the insight you need to uh, feel like you belong and to, to live a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Joined, of course, by Terry South and Becca Hurley, also known as Teaspoon. That's me. Such a cool name. My alter ego. We need to make up clown names for the rest of us. Ooh, you know, that's a big deal in the clown world. Is it? It is, How yeah, does yeah. one get the one's Christmas? clown name? Um, it kind of depends. In my family, like, we had Did clown you call names. It the, the christening? Well, yeah, that's what I'm calling it, but that's not okay. actually, like, okay. a term. I was like, wow. Right? Yeah. But, but, you, it, but it is kind of similarly, like, important. You know, you yeah. get your clown name. I mean, this is like, it's it's almost like the sorting hat of Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of is. That's a that's a pretty good uh pretty good thing to call it. What was that? 
you need to just stay with us because we're once we talk clown talk. Hmm. But so so maybe be thinking about how we can get our clown names. All right. I will. I'll do that. We used to just assign them randomly, but obviously we weren't taking that serious enough. Yeah. We need to be more serious about it. That's right. Because this is a big deal. Comedy is a serious business. It totally is. And uh, today, by the way, we're celebrating National Siblings Day. Also, uh, we're celebrating Give Your Dog a Hug Day. National Give Your Hot Dog a Hug Day. So it's a big day. Appreciate your siblings, but hug your dog. Yeah. Don't be hugging on your siblings, but your dogs for that purpose. Isn't that sad? We, <laughs> we, we, we love our siblings. We're just not hugging them today. You can hug them another day. Fun stuff. Uh, we'll get to all I, of that. I have some clown name suggestions. Okay. Uh, Tubby. Tootsie. Manners. Huh. Trixie. Dumpty, Sunshine, Marbles, Tatters, Shaggy, or Jimbo. Holy cow. That sounds like my family right there. Wow. That sounds like one family reunion. There's a clown name generator online. Is there really? Yeah. Well, you can wh- go with what? Kicker, Diggo, Miko, Velvet, Lucky, Cornflake, Bonzo, Cupcake, Blossom, or, or Tubby again. Tubby comes back up. Why does Tubby keep coming up? I don't know. Snoots, Cherry, Giggles, Curly, BB, Milo, Britches, Echo, Baggy, Frosty. Yeah. Wow. See, some of them sound a little bit more like hippie names, you know. Or yeah. dwarfs, Echo. either way. It sounds like all my I'm dating Canyon in high clown. school. Is Velvet here? Yeah, she just got here. I'm existentialism, the clown. <laughs> That's kind of heavy. Yeah. 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 Maybe you don't want your I'm just saying that list is a little weird. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, speaking of weird, um, politics going crazy. We'll get. We'll let Terry get to that in a second. But also we're going to be talking about your diet. And is it possible that – your diet could actually change your depression. Hmm. Could it eliminate depression if you just managed a healthier diet? We'll be talking with the health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, about that. See, uh, get his take on that idea. Plus, um, just other news, and we'll be visiting with our good friends from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the at the top of the hour. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? After President Trump was finished lashing out of special counsel Robert Mueller, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the FBI, Hillary Clinton's emails on Monday evening, he fielded a question from an unnamed reporter. Why don't you just fire Robert Mueller? Well, I think it's a disgrace what's going on, Trump responded. We'll see what happens. I think it's a really sad situation when you see what happened. Many people have said you should fire him. Trump upset over the FBI agents raiding the office home and hotel room of his personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. The Washington Post reports Cohen is under federal investigation for possible bank fraud, wire fraud, and campaign finance violations with the raid related to a referral by Mueller. After Trump made his remarks, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer warned that if he's thinking of using the FBI raid to fire Special Counsel Robert Mueller or otherwise interfere with the chain of command in the Russia probe, we Democrats have one simple message for him. Don't. Don't do it. No, no, no. Don't. Okay. Don't add too much more to the quote there. Yeah, please. Don't. He needs a better, like, maybe uh, impromptu speechwriter. He no, just have a couple cards sitting it around. It won't matter. Just says, He'll throw don't. them away. Mueller is a Republican, uh, Schumer noted, and has uncovered a deep, detailed pattern of Russian interference in our elections that has led to indictments and guilty pleas. It also led to the Trump administration itself leveling sanctions against Russian individuals, proof that it's not a so-called witch hunt. The investigation is critical to the health of our democracy and must be allowed to continue. 
Wow. So don't. Don't. The federal deficit will surpass a trillion dollars by 2020. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office reported Monday. The deficit is growing at a faster rate than previously estimated, the CBO added, spurring on by recent legislative decisions, including the Republican tax bill passed in December and last month's approval of an increased military spending, which together will add $1.6 trillion to deficits in the next decade. Wow. Federal debt uh, will reach $804 billion by the end of the fiscal year of 2018. Uh, the last CBO report published in June projected the deficits would top a trillion dollars, not until, what, 2022, but recent uh, developments have pushed that timetable up to 2020. The report did find, however, that economic growth is steady and employment is low. Moreover, the nation's G- GDP is set to increase by 3.3% in 2018, making good on Republican promises to spark growth in the economy. Huh. So, the good and the bad. The good and the bad. Hmm. So your your share of the national debt will go up, and no one actually ever pays that, but it's a fun number to see. What if they actually had a, a call, a margin call, where everyone had to like pay their portion? Right. I mean, we're spending it like we're not paying for it, but it, I have a feeling we are paying for it. We just On, at some point, yeah, we're not. We're not noticing it. Hmm. Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced he would raise the total number of Texas National Guard troops to more than 1,000 along the U.S.-Mexico border. Across all border states, the goal is to have at least 4,000 deployed here in about a month or two, the Republican governor said Monday during a radio interview. Texas will increase its number of guardsmen by 300 per week until fully staffed up. Abbott said about 250 troops currently are near the border. The Arizona National Guard has announced a deployment of 338 members. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, was present uh, to send off the first group of 225 on Monday. The uh, New Mexico's Governor Susan Martinez, a Republican, has expressed support for National Guard troops supporting Border Patrol agents in her state but not deployed has not deployed them yet. Governor Jerry Brown of California, a Democrat, is considering sending National uh, California National Guardsmen to the border. Oh, they they wow. already have some down there yeah. in California already. So, so let's um, continue their efforts. Yeah, but that's interesting because California and Trump don't get along very well. And right, they might be unified on a on an idea maybe, here. Maybe we've got an idea that we're together on. We can staff up till we we're there. Um, yeah. So we have our health evangelist in the room. Yes. And so, uh, do you have any good, really good food ideas that he might I enjoy? Don't, I don't know if this is a good food idea. <laughs> it is a food idea, though. So first off, you have to understand there's a, there's a difference between edible and non-toxic glitter. Oh wow! This is that's, an, where we're, that's how we're starting. This? Yeah, this is out of the Washington Post. It says this is an important distinction you'll need to remember if you want to participate in what is shaping up to be one of 2018's biggest and most con- uh, controversial trends: decorating everything from cookies to pizza with a sparkling and shining sparkles. And no, it's not the kind you buy at a craft Why? Doesn't pizza already shine with all the grease on it? Yeah. This says edible glitter has been popping up more and more in food items lately, a natural extension of the childlike rainbow and unicorn trends that have overtaken social media. At first, it was mostly a cake decorating thing with cakes and cookies and special occasion treats. But last year, it made the jump to uh, all kinds of different foods. Uh, so this one, it goes on, it says, recently glitter has made some disturbing leap into the savory foods. Glitter bagels are a thing. One London, one London pub made glitter gravy. It sparkles an odd contrast to the brown meaty sauce that it actually is to cheer up the basic 
roast or whatever meat product. Yeah. Rainbow Glitter Pizza from Santa Monica got some buzz on Instagram. We uh, recreated our version of it in this video. So on the, you can see a video of Can you imagine pizza. an endoscopy after glitter pizza? It just, come on. It helps out in the process, right? Yeah, I'm going to bet he's not real high on edible glitter. No. Our health evangelist. Beginning in May at grocery stores across the nation, you can find Taco Bell flavored chips. Like, you know, their sauce packets. So The hot sauce. Oh, so it just it's just the flavor of their hot sauce. Cla- classic, not... mild, and fire. I always wondered what Taco Bell tasted like. But I guess it's the... It's more their sauce packets. No comment. The ba- and the baseball season just started. Okay. So we got a we yeah. got a, we got a, my favorite baseball food that I was able to find is called the Dilly Dog. The uh, Texas Rangers are oh, offering this. Oh, it sounds good already. The newest addition to their food offering at the Rangers Stadium is a dill pickle cored and stuffed with a hot dog and then deep fried. <sighs> a Dilly Dog. Oh, now have you ever had fried pickles? No. They're amazing. They are amazing. They are so good. But if you could core it out and put a hot dog in the middle, and then if you could somehow inject fake cheese from a can into the middle of the hot dog. Ooh, spray cheese. Oh, you're kind of losing you could do me that. there. But... You, just, you could do a little coring of the hot dog. Yeah. Do a little spray cheese in there. Yeah. Then you core out the pickle and put mm-hmm. the hot dog in there, and then, take, then you deep fry the thing so you get like a corn dog dill pickle well, cheese. And then wrap it in a... Deep fried chalupa wrap. Matt, what's the show on today? Today we're talking about how nutrition may impact your mental health. Hmm. What do you think that would do to your mental health? That would probably push you under. I think Dilly Dog, by the way, is a clown name. Could be. Oh, there we go. Did we just just find Terry's... (laughs) Terry's clown name? Maybe that's it. It sounds good. Dilly Dog the Clown. There you go. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think uh, Ron's not going to like the dilly dog idea. But uh, up next, we'll get to Dr. Ron and let him work his magic on all of us to see if he can't keep us more mentally healthy and strong. Does your diet impact your mental health? We'll be on it in just a minute. Welcome back, friends, to the show. Dr. Matt here, and uh, joining us is Dr. Ron Hager, who is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences right here at Brigham Young University. His expertise is chronic disease prevention. He, we used to call him the, the death preventor, like the dementor, but uh, he didn't like that as much, so we made him the health evangelist. And with, with Becca here, she didn't know about your evangelical—what would, what would we call that music? The— Oh yeah, the, the, uh, what was it? It's uh, the health mir- evangelist, the, the miracle, miracle I, maker yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll play that next time. All right, yeah, I, I did kind of miss that. It's pretty, it's pretty magical. Very <laughs> yeah. few of our guests actually have their own their own music that we play for them. I, that it, makes you very special. It does make me feel special. And yes. um, today you're here to talk about. I was thinking mental health, um, but you're really here to help us de-stress and and show how we can. Be less stressed in life. Well, I, I, I have heard that April yeah. is uh, like a stress awareness month. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing that there's probably something for every month of the year, but April oh, yeah. is stress awareness month. 
So you're trying to de-stress us. Sure. And, you know, springtime, I don't know if that's more or less stressful than other months, but I actually really like spring. I love spring. I, I find it to be less stressful. Aren't you excited so, to get outside? We've been playing more tennis as a family yes, and getting yes. outside more. Yeah, so I think April is a good time to have Stress Awareness Month. Totally. I do too. Yeah, because you're already you're already down. Um, but what, I guess I have a question for you, Matt. What What is something that stresses you out? Hmm. Or, or or not maybe stresses you out. That's kind of a weird term, but yeah. But 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 gives you stress. Stress. Well, my schedule gives me stress because yeah, it kind right. of never stops. Right. And it just is. It's so constant that it's killing me. What about acute stress? Is there because that that is something that yeah. people deal with too? Is there something that can happen or that has happened that you know ma- makes you feel stress? Yeah. Well. Um, I can't tell you that one. Um, okay. I'm, I'm self-censoring. But, I mean, I guess it could be uh, – well, it could be health issues. Sure. Create it. Um, but also um, kids. Yeah. Yeah, like if something's going on with one of your children. Yeah. And and their stress. Yeah. And other people's stress sure. stresses me out. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about this. One of the things for me is uh, a car that breaks down or doesn't work uh, the way it's supposed totally. to. Totally. For whatever reason, it kind of freaks me out, and I just I get stressed almost to the point of anger. Yeah, you know where I just I have to get that car fixed. And then yeah, and, and no then your whole what. life is about this one thing. Like yeah. a lot of people might be feeling stressed out about their taxes. Right, right now. What, yeah. What's the date? We are six days away. I think it's the sixteenth that they're doing taxes right. because fifteenth falls on a Sunday. So people have about five to six days to get their taxes in. Right. And I guess that's a, that's an acute semi-chronic thing, yeah. right? It happens once a year, but it does happen every year. So anyway, the, the point is there are things that can stress us out chronically, like a, like a work schedule mm-hmm. or, or just work in general or you know just the things you have to deal with every day no matter what. And there are things that can stress, provide stress uh, acutely. Um, and there's a lot of research on this too to try and figure out uh, how people deal with it. One of the most interesting things that I've learned as I've studied some of the stress research is that it it really comes down to something quite simple, perception. Really? It's how you see it? It's how you see it, yeah. Um, in, in, in one study, um, the amount of stress and the perception that stress affected your health uh, – it, it, that there was an interaction between those two things. So you could have stress, but if if your perception was that it didn't affect your health, that was different than if you had stress, but you did perceive that it affected your health. Interesting. Th- th- this interaction uh, was studied, and for those who reported a lot of stress and that the stress impacted their health also, 43% increased risk of premature death. What? Yeah. Forty-three percent. Yeah, but this was only true for people who also believed that stress was harmful. People who experienced a lot of stress but did not view the stress as harmful were no more likely to die and had the lowest risk of dying even when compared to people who had little stress. Okay, now hold on because this is confusing because – so if I just tell people stress isn't bad for you – it just it actually makes you stronger or whatever yeah then it it's less damaging yeah but so but is stress damaging anyway well it, 
apparently it has to do with perception. It's all perception. Because because I guess what what you perceive it to be is uh, what it is. Affects you physiologically and and also uh, emotionally and mentally. Now, I came across this quote from William James, a, a philosopher and a psychologist, and, and this kind of goes along with the results of that research. He said, the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. Mm. So That's cool. So the stress can always be there, and people can even know that they're highly stressed, but if they don't believe that it's harmful to them, yeah, it doesn't affect them. I, I thought that was fascinating. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess unless you're so stressed that you literally are dying, yeah, then you can believe it's not bad for you, but you're still dying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, what, now, one of the things that, uh, you know, that researchers look into all the time is uh, causes of death. Uh, you know, you have uh, mortality data every year right. that comes out, you know, what, what caused all the deaths. So uh, when you took the, when the researchers took the findings of this study and they generalized it to the entire population, this is just in the United States, uh, over eight years of follow-up, the researchers estimated that the excess deaths attributable to stress, or more, more, more specifically how stress is perceived, uh, the the number of deaths over the eight-year follow-up was 182,079 deaths. So that's about 20,200 deaths per year. Wow. And so that would be, you know, if it could be identified, cause of death would be stress. Stress killed this person. Wow. So that that was kind of interesting as well. Yeah. So stress is a real thing. Uh, now, there, there's some other really cool research because now the question becomes, well, how, okay, how do I change my perception or what do I do? Right. What do because I do? everybody has stress, both uh -huh. both acute and chronic. Um, so I found some other research. Uh, one of the hypothesized uh, kind of links between, uh, you know, how to change your perception of stress and, you know, and, and the stress you're actually having uh, has to do with social connections hmm. and that um, – you know, that people who have an adequate social network, a, a, a real one, that allows them to have interactions and opportunities to help sort of lift and serve uh, one another, uh, it, it's actually been shown to be a buffer really? uh, against the detrimental effects of uh, stress. Interesting. And, and so there was a study that was done uh, after, after researchers adjusted for age. Um, because You may notice this, but... Your your perception of stress actually changes oh, with yeah. your age. You go back to your teenage years, the things that stressed you out then, you laugh at them now. Right. You know, kill for that. Right. And the things that stress you out now, younger <laughs> younger generations don't understand and, and an older generation laughs at you. Yeah. You know. So so, so so that kind of indicates that perceptions can actually change too with yeah, age. Thank so heavens. so these researchers adjusted for age, uh, for baseline health and functioning and other psychosocial variables and uh, and they showed that specifically that stress did not predict mortality or death among individuals who provided help to others in the past year. But stress did predict mortality among those who did not provide help to others. So serving others? Uh, yeah. And in this study, it was specifically more like caretaker mm -hmm. type help. Uh, but yeah, but serving others is 
It's actually good for your health. It might produce a sense of stress for you, but it's not going to be harmful for you. But it changes your perception of what the stress is. So I I thought that was really interesting, too. So the the conclusion was that helping others uh, predicted lower lower death rates uh, by kind of buffering or negating this association between stress and mortality or death. Yeah. So that, so, you know, there's two studies there. One that shows that, uh, you know, it's kind of how it kind of like William James said, it's, you know, one choosing one thought over another, you know, this stress is going to kill me or, you know, yeah, this is, or or, or this going to make me stronger or this stress is just going to be something I have to deal with. And yeah. And, you know, and some people do, I've actually met people who have that perception, you know, that they handle stress. The same yeah. stress differently than other people handle the same stress. Well, and it might be too. Um, maybe other things that are dangerous aren't your percep. The perception of stress may not be what you're attributing it to, but your freedom, your choices, mm-hmm. those might cause depression. I mean, if all of a sudden you realize you don't have as many choices because of your choices, right? That it, I mean, it might stress you, but you might not be worried about the stress. You may just be worried about the money. Sure. Sure, and and you mentioned the thing about choices again, and when you're when you feel like you're out of choices, you have no options. Yeah, it's kind of a crisis. Yeah, you're in a desperate mode. Yeah, hopeless mode. Yeah. So, what do we do to mitigate the stress? Um, again, we're speaking with Dr. Ron Hager, who's our health evangelist right here from BYU. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences, and uh, he's going to help us understand what we can do. To minimize the stress, manage right. the stress. Right. So there are some things you manage can do. Manage the paradigm, first of all, the perspective. Sure. And, and really, I, what I've learned is that there is no one-size-fits-all. Yeah, no. Okay? So you, you have to figure this out. But, but I do have some ideas. Um, one of the things you can do is take a break from the stressor. Now, that's easier said than done. For example, you said your schedule. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean— I yeah, just had a week off. So, so you can take breaks yeah. that way. Yeah. But, but taking a— uh, you know, a break, you know, may not be the most optimal thing for some people because yeah. they're they're they, they maybe maybe they just don't have opportunities for breaks. But right. but you know, so that that may be difficult, especially if it's like what's stressing you is some big work project or something. It's not like yeah, I'm just going to take a break. I mean, if you've got a deadline, you know, breaks aren't going to work very well. Or or you know, I, I remember uh, a time in my life, usually when when I was a younger parent. A crying baby. Oh yeah, you know would if if it didn't, you know if, if if I couldn't get get the you know my my son or whatever to stop crying, it, it my my stress level just went through the roof, and uh, and I had to, you know, you may not be able to take a break from that. No, you know, it's I, like that doesn't go. Know, away. I mean, what are you going to do? Set the baby down, leave the house? You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so my wife and I worked together on that one. Or or what about a credit card bill? Oh yeah, right. So you mentioned finances. Finance, you can't just keep avoiding it. Finances can be a huge stress. Like, well, totally. I'm just going to take a break for a couple months from this. <laughs> that that could get you into a lot of trouble. Yeah, so, so there are sometimes when you can take a break. Other times, uh, maybe you can't. Uh, but sometimes, even just 20 minutes. So, you know, you mentioned a week long vacation. You know, yeah, that that's awesome. But you know, maybe maybe 20 minutes could help too. Oh yeah, yeah. So so you know that's one thing. Now exercise is another one. I, I routinely we talk about stress and its effect on health in my chronic disease prevention class, and we talk about exercise. We talk about diet and some other things. But one of the questions I'll ask my class is, how many people in here who ex- in my class who exercise regularly uh, 
do it primarily for the purpose of relieving your stress. And I'm saying like three-fourths of do the hands really? go up. So, so that's a major factor, a major. especially among college students at well, least. Well, what's interesting too, though, is exercise is a stressor. You're yeah. stressing your body yeah. to de-stress your body. Yeah, isn't that? Yeah, that's kind of interesting yeah. too. But but there are uh, th- there are a number of ways that exercise impacts stress, uh, both physiologically, psychologically. But but it's a good one. The 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 the, the research shows that even other uh, factors associated with emotional strain, like depression or anxiety and and stress, uh, that exercise can be as effective as more traditional treatments or therapies like medication really? or, yeah. or counseling or those kinds of things. So e- exercise is a big one. Uh, smile and laugh. How about that? How about that one? Uh, uh, you know, our, our brains are definitely connected with our emotions. And I think that's one of the reasons people who perceive that stress is not harmful to their health uh, ma- manage it so well. Uh, but when people are stressed, they, they often hold a lot of stress in their face. You know, some people are better at hiding it than others, but yeah. most people, if you're familiar with them enough, you can tell when they're stressed. Part of that has to do with maybe how they're acting, but a lot of it has to do with just how they look. So, you know, laughing, smiling, maybe can just let some of that tension out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then I mentioned the social support, you know, the idea of, you know, calling a friend or just communicating with someone uh, that you know. Uh, you know, when, when you're able to share your feelings, when you're able to share your concerns, sometimes that's just a relief of burden, even though nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Just the idea that, you know, somebody uh, can hear you out uh, can be very helpful. And, and it has been shown to relieve stress. Um, you know, if, if your family is a stressor, for example, you mentioned, yeah. well, well, sometimes my kids kind of get themselves into trouble and mm-hmm. stresses me out. Uh, you know, it may not alleviate your stress if you uh, you know, share your your stress with them, you know, because right, right. <laughs> you know you, you might have to figure out something else. Uh, but but it's definitely important to uh, find somebody to talk to, and and then and then of course the idea is also look for ways to serve those around you. Yeah. You know, I just mentioned some research on that. And then there's meditation. You know, it could be anything from you know just sitting in a quiet space and. Uh, thinking, uh, you know, maybe counting your blessings sort of a thing. Uh, you know, I, I'm telling you, since I was young, teenager, uh, that has actually worked very well for me. When I feel like things get overwhelming, I mean, I'm just ready to scream. Uh, if I can just sit down, close my eyes, and sometimes I, I kind of self-resist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I don't want to do this. But if I can just make myself Start, you know, counting my blessings. Count the good things in my life. And there are good things. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, if you want to know what's good in your life, look around at some of the pain and suffering around you. But if I could count my blessings, everything would change for me. So that was a kind of meditation that I used. But there's even this idea now, mindfulness is kind of a buzzword. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that can really help people uh, release emotions sort of a thing. Uh, and and change their stress. So a lot like exercise, uh, you know, even meditating briefly can can help you reap re, you know reap some acute sort of immediate effects of stress. And then there's also some factors related to diet. Uh, you know, n- nutrition affects us. There's no question. We've talked extensively about that uh, on and off on the show. Uh, you know, some foods are actually are comfort foods. Yeah. Uh, you know, they just make you feel good. Now they may not be the most healthy, so you kind of got to be careful with that. Um, 
but but sometimes literally the foods you eat can even change physiological functioning in your body. For example, mm-hmm. healthy carbohydrates, for example, maybe like a sweet potato or even whole grains have actually been shown to increase serotonin. Wow, yeah. And and that that's a chemical that can boost your mood and yeah, help and kind help of the and antidepressant. Help, yeah, yeah, and 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 help relieve stress. It's even been shown to help you focus more and improve cognitive functioning. So sort of a great way to clear your mind, think more clearly, uh, you know, e- eating healthy. Uh, also things that are high in omega-3 fatty acids like avocados or, or certain fish, fatty fishes like salmon or tuna, fish oils. Omega-3s are anti-inflammatory uh, or, or they have anti-inflammatory effects in, in the body. And they, could, they have also been able to, you know, shown in research to improve mood. And then, of course, one of my favorites is dark chocolate. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, dark chocolate. It's rich in antioxidants. Uh, it can actually, uh, it, it's been shown in research to reduce stress by lowering levels of stress hormones. Wow. Uh, so eat a little bit of dark chocolate every day. Uh, it can also feel like an indulgence. Yeah. Right? That's and, like, yeah, and, there's your treat. Yeah, so it's kind of like that comfort food idea. And and that can just sort of be a reward or just a, a time to maybe even take you to a place where you can meditate. You know, I'm just yeah. going to eat this chocolate and think about the good things in life. Oh, okay, let's do that. So there's a few ideas. Good stuff. Dr. Ron, thank you. Um, yep. Again, everything from your paradigm to your diet. Yeah. Smiling, laughing, exercising, friends, social support. It's all there. Good Count stuff. your blessings. Count your blessings. Yeah. Name them one by one. Good stuff. Dr. Ron Hager, remember, uh, he's, he's a member of the faculty here at Brigham Young University. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences uh, in the life sciences um, department right here at Brigham Young University. And we appreciate him. He is the chronic disease preventor. He's a good man. Thank you, Ron. And we'll continue the journey. We'll do a little uh, empty news straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. Welcome back, folks. Uh, would you believe that uh, being obese can actually make you lose your sense of taste? New research suggests that the key to understanding obesity might be hidden in your taste buds. In a study published Tuesday in the journal uh, PLOS Biology, scientists discovered that mice that were fed high-fat diet lost about 25% of their taste buds in just eight weeks. No way. That's sad. Taste buds are clusters of cells on the tongue that can uh, help the brain identify flavors, um, according to Pacific standards. Um, uh, Although the taste buds have a natural lifespan of about 10 days, in mice with high-fat diets, new taste buds weren't being produced nearly fast enough to replace the old ones as they died off. Hmm. So it's it's almost like... Your body, what, they, your taste buds can't keep up with your weight gain. It's not cutting it. So if you want to be able to taste your food, maybe it's just the volume. It's like, why are we trying? Is that what it is? It's just we so much going to, through? We don't even need to taste this. <laughs> You're just pushing too much in there. Wow. Um, but that's sad. The research suggests that obesity might be a part of a dangerous self-fulfilling cycle because taste plays a significant role. Hmm. And the amount of satisfaction we get from food, people with dulled sense of taste may naturally seek out more food to appease their appetites. So are they saying that food doesn't taste as good? It's not as you, – if you have a, a half of the taste buds, you don't taste as much of it. So you, you need more food to get more of the benefit of the taste. Wow. 
Does that mean, though, so like as you get closer to a healthy weight, then you'll be able to taste your food more? You would think so, huh? Because that seems like an incentive, you know, you kind of... If you're into taste. Now, I don't, I just, I'm just hungry. Eating, eating, to lose weight, you need to eat healthier, which tends to be like the food doesn't taste as good because you're not eating the food that, you're eating healthier food, right? So it's more, you'd think maybe more natural. Yeah. And so the sugar's different. So the sugar is the natural sugar versus like processed sugar. Processed sugar tends to taste better, at least in the moment. Well, now you're confusing the whole thing. No, I know, but it just I, what I'm thinking is, as you eat healthier, I think maybe the food doesn't taste as good. Well, unless you, when you have more taste buds, it does taste better. Yeah, maybe maybe it doesn't taste as good because you don't have as many. Taste People buds. start trying to mix in like quinoa and stuff like that yeah. when you're trying to eat healthy. I mean, let's get real. You're like, whoa. Kale, kale is never going to taste good. No, you can dress that up as any way you want. It still tastes like kale. I mean, yeah, it wasn't created to be eaten. No. <laughs> it was a garnish. It's always been a garnish. It's supposed to decorate the salad bar. That's I mean, it. I get how the goats may love it, but look at the goats. I don't know. You could take some and put it in a in a smoothie with like a banana and stuff. It's not that bad. So, so how it still do you, tastes like grass, but it's like not yeah. horrible. How do you lose weight but still keep the taste quotient high? Because it well, seems like if you're going to keep pushing it, because you're you're saying as 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 obesity occurs, then the taste buds they dull. They actually die. They die. You don't have as many. So maybe you eat more food to compensate because it yeah. doesn't taste as good. So if you're going to lose weight, you need to eat different food, but maybe it's not what you want to eat. Well, or maybe you just need to get better at seasoning your food. Ah, more hot sauce. Like So maybe it's less about volume and more about seasoning. Mm. Then go find – I mean, I'm sure – in fact, most season seasonings really are probably lower fat. We're just used to seasoning with butter. Just don't season with butter. Try a little salt. Okay. That's a great seasoning. It's a great seasoning. Hmm. This is interesting. I'll have to look into it more. I like personally. I like to season with like Miracle Whip. Oh, that's I'm a Miracle good Whip one. guy. Some some don't go for Miracle Whip. They don't like sugar in their condiments. I I enjoy the Miracle Whip. It's not allowed in my house. It's the whip that yeah. I like. You know, if you season right. all your food with habanero peppers, I'll oh. bet that would naturally help you lose weight. And but I just read a little study on that. What it does to your brain. Be careful eating certain peppers. Really? Messes the brain up a little bit. Whoa. It's kind of scary. Like how? It it gives you brain sweats. Okay. Brain sweats? Yeah. I don't know what they call what is it. That? I made that up. But oh. uh, apparently peppers <laughs> impact the brain. You feel the burn there in your brain. There are people that actually – so if you give them the hottest peppers, their brain shuts down and they pass out. Oh. Well, that's your body trying to preserve itself because you just tried to destroy it with the hottest pepper. Right, and you would then damage your brain while trying to win a bet with your buddies at a bar. Yeah, don't do that. That's just stupid. Or these these people a few months ago on all the TV morning news shows with the ghost pepper chips. Did you see those? Oh, yeah. They'd eat a chip and then their face would melt off and everyone would laugh at them. Yeah, I saw that in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. That – Face melt made me right then realize I'm not eating another pepper. No ghost pepper chips. And it's funny because those are those are non-toxic. Like we were talking about the edible glitter earlier. You know, yeah. a pepper that can melt your face off is yeah. still considered non-toxic. You know, but, which is well, why but, that label well, means very little. I'd rather have glitter in that case yeah. than my face melting off because of a pepper. No reason to die for any of this. No. 
Hey, up next, we're going to be visiting with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show a little bit later today. And, uh, and then, of course, we'll do the Hero of the Day. That's all straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, friends, it's time to head down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show in just uh, 10 short minutes from now. Uh, this should be, if I'm correct, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Home and Law's got it. Spencer's back. He's back. For now. For now. <laughs> a couple of days this week and then uh, off for a week and then, then I'm back. This is, this is well played by you. Like, maximize the amount of time you can use those paternity days. Correct. S- somebody's uh, been looking at the calendar and, like, organizing the paternity days to the max uh, extremely yield. Well, I don't blame my wife for thinking, look, my mom's going to be here, so you go work a little bit. I don't need you here. I don't need you here right now, but yeah. when she leaves, I do need you here. Yeah. It's well played. Smart. It's one of the greatest paternity schedules of all time. Well, and if, yeah, if for it's those. It's top five. Like, what, yeah, in for the those that are keeping score. Today, we'll rank them. <laughs> <laughs> it is a top five paternity schedule. Spencer Linton, top five paternity Time dead. Yes, <laughs> I didn't yes. know that we were starting to um, to to like rank sports. Everything lists. can be ranked. That's lists amazing. are amazing. Okay, I got. I got. I want something. I want you guys to rank something. Let's do this. Where does this rank on the scale? Do you guys like glitter in your food? No, I don't Apparently, like glitter in my ear. And yesterday, I while I was getting ready for the show, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I have a piece of glitter in there." No, I no. have a daughter. Oh, okay. So that's you're about to have glitter. I'm trying to figure Yay! out. I'm trying to figure out how you got glitter in your ear. But I, not, then I have no idea. You have a daughter. She, I have a daughter. She probably just was kissing you with her little glitter lips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no glitter. No glitter. Apparently, glitter is taking off, and now they have an edible glitter, which um, <laughs> what? So, yeah. So now you can get glitter bagels. Uh, one London pub made a glitter gravy that sparkles an odd contrast to the brown meaty sauce, and you just pay, you know pour it over your roast. You, there's rainbow glitter pizzas in Santa Monica now. Yay. And um, so question is, do we really want glitter in our food, even if it's edible? Nope. Good answer. Where would glitter rank in your, uh, as a condiment choice? Uh, one to ten. Ten is like, put it on everything. One, keep it away from my food. One. Wow. Wow. How Why? about you, Jeremy? Why? Why? Ed- I mean, I could understand on like a cupcake. For decorating purposes, if it's yeah. edible, you know, there are some fun things there. But other than that, why? Not in your gravy? It Man. Just makes me feel like someone came by with their <laughs> bedazzled kid and accidentally spilled it in my gravy. Don't you love it like when you, you hug the cousin at a party and then you got glitter all over forever? I hate that. And I hate Christmas presents yes. that have glitter everywhere. Or birthday that, cards with tons of glitter. Yes, it's impossible to get off your clothing. Yeah, Why? But, what no. is the point? I know, it's tough. Seal right? that stuff. Like, if you want to do glittery, like, you can put, like, a protective layer, I'm sure, over so that it won't get everywhere. Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah. See? Solve the problem, folks. Hey, by the way, um, uh, today is uh, also National Siblings Day, so make sure that you guys go take care of your siblings. Show them some love today. Okay. Because I, I think of you two as like my brothers, so I just want to <laughs> shout brothers. out. Brothers. What are you doing for us? Um, I was going to get you a glitter bomb. 
<laughs> but then I was told I'm not allowed to have a bomb at work. So I'll probably oh. just get you a card with a lot of glitter yeah. on it. Yeah, don't uh, joke around about bombs, especially in airports. <laughs> I know, especially if you're a football player. Good grief. Who did that? Uh, yeah. I can't remember. Some, some <laughs> oh, NBA, NFL player, right? Made yes. a joke. Yeah. Don't ever mention, hey, so did we pack our bomb? You know, they don't uh, like that. that. You just can't. You can't. Do that. It was Trevor Davis. That's who it was. Yeah, TSA. They, I don't know. They're they're just they're they're really serious about their job. Is there a more chill group than TSA? Hey, next time you go nobody. through TSA, throw some glitter on them. See how that goes. <laughs> they should be on it. <laughs> if there's anyone that you actually want to be, uh, you know, hard to work with, it would yeah. be the TSA. Yes, oh, especially. For sure. Like I want yeah. you to be difficult. Yeah, sort of. Like I love. Why do I have to take off my belt and my shoes? Like. No other place in the world besides my bedroom. Don't you love watching TSA like, like shake down an eighty-year-old woman? Just like totally shake her down, you know. And as they're shaking the eighty-year-old down, all this glitter's coming out, and you like, I feel safer. Too much glitter. You're right. The glitter bomb. Hey, so uh, on your show, what what's going on? What are we doing today to make it even more exciting than it already is? Yes, we announced yesterday officially that spring football is over. Right? You got yeah, that. it's over. You're, you follow, right? It's done. Kalani Sasaki came in and talked to BYU Sports Nation. Right. Did he tip his hand at who the guy is at quarterback? <gasps> Did he? You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> or listen. Okay. Does BYU have enough depth on defense? Kalani Sasaki gave us a specific number of how many guys he wants to be able to play on defense. Is it too many? Interesting. And, Matthew, if you could yes. make a documentary about the larger-than-life BYU athlete, not, I mean... Literally speaking, or but, maybe literally yeah, speaking. Personality, okay. Who deserves it? Oh, boy. In the spirit of Andre the Giant, that documentary coming out on HBO tonight. Really? Okay, so we need to – so you're going to talk about that. That's a good uh, – I don't know. There are lots of good choices there, man. But a whole documentary, I mean, that's Just a lot of time. who deserves a documentary? Wow. I think Kalani. The Matt Townsend documentary. No, we've already The rise, that. the fall, and the rise again, and the fall again. And then the fall again, and then the, Dr. Then the rise. <laughs> Yeah, and then the glitter bomb that and the glitter bomb. led to the fall. Yeah, it's, it's a great show. Gator Ball, the the beginning <laughs> of the end. That then of Matt Townsend. That then took over the country of Doctor Ma- of Call Me Doctor Matt. Townsend. Call Me Doctor Matt Townsend. All right, guys. Well, that's a great show, man. And I, I'm going to work on that documentary. I will pitch that to BYU Broadcasting because I think the rise, the fall, and then the rise, and then the fall, and then the rise again would be a great title. Oh, my boys. Good job. And good luck to you both. Spencer and Jerem, they're straight ahead on BYU Sports Nation. You've only got about five minutes uh, before you get to just bask in the glory that we call Sports Nation. Now, it's uh, it's the time that we, we – well, first thing, I, I want to make sure that we pay tribute to pay phones. I don't know if you know this. They are an endangered species. There's only 100,000 pay phones left in the United States. They're going fast, folks. So do what you can to pull out a quarter and go, you know, go go use a payphone. Only one hundred thousand payphones left. Um, they uh, the SEC providers reported a two hundred eighty six million dollar revenue from payphones in twenty fifteen. So they still make a lot of money, but uh, they you know in ninety nine nineteen ninety nine there were two million payphones. Now we're down to just 100000 So if you happen to see a payphone as you're walking down the street, go give it some love. Just go 
lift that receiver up. Now back to the hero story. Our hero is a Fresno man that's hailed as a hero after performing CPR on a toddler Wednesday who fell into a pool and nearly drowned. It happened at a home in central Fresno, California. Police say the 14-month-old got into the yard on her own and fell into the pool. Neighbor Eric Jones performed CPR on the little girl after hearing someone scream, Help! I just put some air inside her and kept her on her side. And then the water came out and you... uh, and you know, up, and you hear that uh, she's doing well, and she made it through. She just started crying, and saved. It's problem solved. Just put a little air in her. He said, Fresno police said the toddler was was conscious when transported to the local medical center, so he is a lifesaver. He did it. Just one guy, Eric Jones, happened to be there at the right time, and that's what makes the hero, along with the person that's willing to actually step up and do what needs to be done. And I think all of us can do a little bit better to be there for the people around us. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. BYU Sports Nation is up next.